Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Kind Mind. This is Todd. Happy July and summer, and also the season of cancer in astrology, which aligns with this being the 69th episode because a sideways 69 is the symbol of cancer. That zodiac sign also complements this topic. Cancer is the crab, so like the seahorse also from the ocean, and represents rest and mending. It also stands for femininity, and these talks are all about mending masculinity from its weaponization in harmful patriarchy and capitalism based on greed. In order to have healthier balance and equality with women and all genders and with the divine feminine in all of us, this zodiac sign also involves home, family, roots, and children. I'm sure that's what many of us will be honoring and spending time with this 4th of July weekend, so I wish you and yours a safe and relaxing holiday. I know it may seem like there's not much to celebrate at the moment, with war, deep divides widening, political despondency, financial insecurity, and dejection among so many. But I encourage you not to lose hope. Let's connect around the intimation that this one-of-a-kind experiment of America, where all the peoples of the world would try to live together on this cosmogral blue-green jewel, may not end in failure. And why do I say this? Because of what we all are fundamentally. According to studies in physics and chemistry, not only do we share our very physical structure as humans with others as our cells die and regenerate, but every atom of our bodies has already circulated with all life, as well as everyone who ever lived. As we eat, drink, and breathe, then exhale, excrete, and secrete, and merge back into the biosphere circuitously forever. We are one and cannot maintain this sense of separateness without inflicting real self-harm, as instantiated by the rising temperatures of the earth and the now perennial wildfires which correlate with our own unprecedented rates of autoimmune disease and inflammation. As Rumi said, the whole universe is within you. Ask all from yourself. If we can make our own commitment to it, I believe we will see the light of unity. I want to thank Maureen Muldoon, the spiritual director of the Speakeasy Spiritual Community. She first reached out to me during the emergence of the Me Too movement, and we've since collaborated numerous times to support community and listen to people's stories in order to validate the real corrosive patterns on the spectrum of violence from men towards women and others and shed light on the path forward. I'm also grateful for Regina and Mari and Joni and others from Speakeasy who helped organize and host these talks and conversations with me. I'll be returning more regularly because I enjoy sharing in that space and the non-judgmental environment to test out ideas with one another. This episode was recorded over three consecutive weeks one year ago in June 2021. It's called the Seahorse Series because of the uniqueness of the male seahorse, which you'll hear more about shortly, and subtitled Mending Masculinity. This series is about the energy and quality of masculinity as distinct from manhood, but then it's also about men and perspectives on life and wisdom for males. I thought maybe this isn't the right time, but then maybe it is, because it's a plea for unity and also a defining moment for men in our long history 
of perpetual inequality inflicted upon women. From how the institution of marriage has been structured, I mean, just think of a woman going from miss to missus, and yet a man is mister to mister, and women expected or required to change their names throughout history, and wear the ring first, was it partnership or property? And to mass shootings today by boys, what else are we neglecting to address than the prevalence of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse? Mia Sarah from Speakeasy Community asked in these talks about building trust and mentioned her daughter's shirt that said, A bitch is a woman with boundaries. I wasn't able to adequately answer at the time or now. But I want to say I think it's miraculous that women can still find it in their heart to trust men given the ubiquity of violence for males towards females. I think trust is innate, so we need to build a society where those disturbing stats, like 18 million women victims of rape and 3 million who have experienced rape-related pregnancies in their lifetime, when those stats become such rare cases that a shirt like that makes no sense to anyone, Despite my initial reluctance to enter into this vulnerable and controversial space, if I can inspire or support somebody in their journey, then it's totally worth it. And if the feedback is edifying for me, then it's totally necessary to honor my own values of personal growth. So please reach out and let me know what you think about this episode. This is the longest Kind Mind episode ever at around four hours. And there's still plenty more to say, I'm sure, specifically about personal relationships and family dynamics. But hopefully this long start is a testament to how much concern is given here. I chose not to break it up into three separate episodes because I don't want it to be inadvertently listened to out of order. If this topic matters to you, I really hope you can listen to the whole thing at your own pace. Because it builds carefully, and I would love for you to hear the astute contributions from others throughout this series. Maybe it can serve you on your road trips this weekend or be a good conversation starter for you and your companion. There are three segments, and they wouldn't make sense out of order. Part one focuses on principles of polarity and complementarity. Part two gets into social dominance theory, manifested as patriarchy, and what people call toxic masculinity. Part 3 explores emotional maturity and taboos for men and women with respect to cultural norms and double standards involving their expression, and how to raise and mentor boys and young men today and harness the best of the masculine side of life for resilience and courage, strength to hold space for others and power and innovation, to do the healing, creative, prosperous work together. I also want to apologize if I seem to disparage all religion at times here or in general in the podcast. That's not my aim, but rather to endorse honest reviews of all our institutions and call attention to exploitation and the detriments of hierarchical myths and any conscious or unconscious systems that perpetuate supremacy. Because we dream of a world with freedom and equality for all. And there's mounting evidence that we need to manifest that dream if we are to save ourselves from extinction. Because domination and disruption to the ecological health of the planet go hand in hand. 
So let me share a glimpse into what we were going to attempt to explore with more time, the spiritual man, and offer a peace pipe to all those listening who adore Christ or Mary or feel love for the enlightenment of Jesus as a man on earth among other noble teachers of various times and places. I recall this one simple line from Luke 2.52 and can draw some insight from it for the question that came up throughout the series of how to raise boys or mentor men given the circumstances and the current rules of the game for success. The passage is simply, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and people. So there are four points. One, wisdom. In my understanding, wisdom is a priori versus empirical. That is to say, wisdom doesn't happen simply by growing older and adding experiences. One is wiser not so much by acquiring knowledge, but by dismantling illusions. 2. Stature Take care of your physical health your whole life. Fitness need not be synonymous with youth. Build your body according to your capacity in such a way that the care for your temple makes you a living shrine of peace and a benevolent and strong presence for the vulnerable or disadvantaged. 3. In favor with the higher power. Serve the good of the whole. If you are unsure at times, honor and follow the earth, which follows the universe, which follows the supreme reality. 4. In favor with people. Build trust. Lead and follow with the same enthusiasm. If you lead, do so with goodness by striving to be fair to all and accountable for your mistakes. Support your friends, family, teams, and don't be afraid to ask for support also as a matter of authenticity. And Maureen and the women in these meetings drew my attention to the absence of a divine mother in so many religious traditions, mostly in the West, and how sacred feminine stories other than whore and virgin would be so spiritually conciliatory. Consider patriarchal religions with God as the father only, or Adam and Eve's fall blamed on the woman and the origin of all evil. So I can see how exploring the divine feminine and reverence for Mother Nature can help pull us back from the brink. And I've been processing this neglect of a divine mother, and I wrote a poem that I'll share here. It's called Matter Matters. The Divine Feminine has many religious forms, including the revered protective goddess Durga. We beg for help with open palms, but cannot hold in our two hands what she can give with her ten. If a devotee surrenders and fills her hands instead, by leaping into her many arms like a helpless babe, reunited and safe in the mother's embrace, then one has everything and is one with everything. Form means matter, and matter means mother, etymologically, creatively, and mystically. All matter is the same modeling clay of maternal Gaia. Materialism should spell piety rather than property, the mattering of all substance as substratum shakti. Mother Nature has assembled us out of herself and will definitely dismantle us into herself, Our wayward child's play between is sandcastle pride. 
a masculine dream of dominion over matter, until the mother beckons and gathers us back to her, or until we cannot be pacified and cry only for her. And who am I to speak anything about these matters, especially femininity or feminism or women's long struggle? I'm not anybody. I guess I feel like both a student initiating dialogue and also a researcher presupposing that maybe womanhood doesn't necessarily confer clarity on feminism any more than manhood is certification of a comprehension of the patriarchy. If I could lift that burden off any individual, we may be more inclined to talk with openness and reach an epiphany about what we were born into like a fish in the water that you can't see, but is all around us. Is it the water of the ocean? Is it the water of the river? Is the water polluted? So then this is an invitation to hear from all people to better understand our place in the world and history, how we impact one another and recognize and regard our interdependence and our unique opportunities for correction, redemption, and progress for all. And I'm not saying our problems aren't deeper than this. I think they probably are. But let's pull on this strand together and see how we can begin to unravel the whole veil. Please do share this one with others. Maybe text it to someone you care about because it's important for everyone. May this little series serve as a catalyst for men to kindly process any personal denial of the sacred feminine and befriend that side within themselves. And then like a new warrior repurpose the tools of bravery and strength beyond control and conquest, but to truly hold enough space and guard it with your heart, to listen to women and persons of all genders and orientations, to acknowledge how that imbalance in the individual man might be reflected in the socio-political ecological system with perilous consequences for all, as we are interdependent then all persons can harmonize their efforts to regenerate the earth, scaling outward from the microcosm to the macrocosm. Thank you for listening, and as always, I hope to connect with you soon. Be well. So we have such a treat for today, We not just today, but for the next three weeks. We have Todd Fink in the house, who is an artist, a speaker. He is the host of Kind Mind Podcast. And if you don't have a subscription to Kind Mind, like get on it because so much good information. Like you just want to listen to him forever. <laughs> so, um, so many insights and um, so many topics he's covered already. So there's just like a wealth of information also over at his website. There's a ton. Um, he's also the co-founder of the Giving Tree Band and his songs and videos and writings and lectures have inspired people from around the world. So we have him for the next three weeks with his music and his messaging. And so I just want to start off by celebrating that. And so if you know somebody who's in need of this message, like be sure to invite them to this series so that you can take this conversation even deeper. So this is Spiritual Speakeasy. Uh, My name is Maureen Muldoon. I'm the spiritual director. And it's great to see you all here this morning. We love being in community with you. 
Thanks, Jeannie, for that great prayer. Thanks, Todd, for that great song. Um, if this is your first time, welcome. If this is your second time, welcome back. If it's your third time, we hope that you consider this your spiritual home. Speakeasy is a place to be known and to know a greater uh, idea about yourself. It's an incubator of awesomeness where we help and hope to make dreams come true. Uh, we love celebrating the very best of who we're capable of being. And we are a uh, virtual community with a uh, global message. After Todd speaks, we're going to have a conversation. And the conversation is what I think is one of the most important things that we do. And during the conversation, we ask you to really tap into what is yours to say. Does this need to be said? Does it need to be said now? Does it need to be said now by me? And helping each other find our space to share our authentic voice is so very generous and good. But we ask you not to leave your brains or your beliefs or your backgrounds at the door. No matter what brought you to this moment, like, it's all good. We do not have all the answers, but we love entertaining the questions. I want to introduce you again to Todd Fink. Um, aside from that beautiful recognition that he that he is known for, being an artist and a speaker and a, a deep thinker and a generous sharer, um, he's just like a, a class great person that you want to know and follow like he just really is impeccable integrity like easy um humor and laughter like goes all the way to the deep end every single time like there's no surface thing there and he also walks his talk like he lives what he shares and i find that to be so very refreshing I'm so grateful that he's taking the helm for this uh, Sacred Masculinity series. I cannot think of anyone better for this role, and I just deep bow in gratitude, and I turn this over to Todd Fink. Thank you so much, Maureen. I'm happy to be here. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. I agree with Maureen that the most important part is the conversation. I feel like I'm not really giving a lecture. I'm introducing the conversation that we'll have together for three weeks. I'm willing and open as far as sharing my perspectives here today so that we can create a, a space that's safe for all of us to, to jump in or whoever feels like jumping in. I would like to share some of my experiences throughout these three weeks. And we've called this the Seahorse Series about mending masculinity. So why, why the seahorse? Well, the seahorse has some beautiful symbolism. I mean, just think of a seahorse for a minute. If you ever see a seahorse, doesn't it just bring um, a special feeling to you? For so many cultures around the world, it is a mystical and magical creature. For sailors and divers, seahorses were symbols of good luck and may even be worn as, as charms to be protected in the sea. It was associated as a symbol of God, uh, the God of water, Poseidon, for ancient Greeks. Also, ancient Greeks called the seahorse hippocampus. If you know a little bit about the brain, we have a hippocampus in our brain that is somewhat similar in shape to the seahorse. And this part of the brain is for learning and memory and growth, which is what we're all going to try to do together over the next three weeks. And then, most importantly for our purposes, the seahorse is a symbol of power and masculinity. And it's 
special that it's seen as a masculine symbol because it doesn't behave in a stereotypical manner in all its functions. For example, the seahorse carries the eggs of its young in its pouch, whereas many other animals would be would be different. The the mother, the female, would carry the eggs or protect the young. But the male seahorse holds the eggs, protects the young, and protects the female. So it kind of points to the construct that is masculinity in our culture and the stereotypes that have developed over centuries. We're calling this mending masculinity also because problems arise when masculinity as an energy, as a phenomenon, as an aspect of the divine or aspect of the natural world, when that becomes synonymous with manhood. Then you find limitations in the full expression of uh, the, the spirit in human form. But in my experience growing up, I didn't realize that I had probably a little bit unconventional upbringing. My mother and father were have been together for over 40 years, but they both possessed the quality, the stereotypical qualities of both sides of this polarity. I could see my mother become strong and powerful in the face of trouble or threats to me or to our family. Um, of course, my father could do that as well, but there was a period of time that stood out to me in my childhood where he built a house himself by himself, flipped that house, then took a year off work to write poetry and published a, a book of poems, played many instruments, still plays many instruments. And so in between these all these energies that were nurturing me and my mother's compassion was endless, I found that I had a range of expression as, as a young man that I didn't realize was somewhat unique in, in this world. When I got to college, I had a, a very good friend who became a guitar teacher to me. His skill was unmatched in the entire university and we became very close. But sadly, I learned that he had no support from his father with music at all. So it was almost like a closet hobby of his. And yet he was significantly more skilled and talented than I would ever be. But because of his teaching and his support of me, I was able to go be a professional musician and tour the world and have all these experiences. And yet I had the freedom to do that because of my understanding of what it meant to be a man and what I could and couldn't do as a man. And he didn't have that luxury. So even in, in my early years of adulthood, I felt something was off there and it harkened back to experiences I had. It started to put some things together for me with the way I was coached and brought up by other men in my life. And then I started to see that there are big gaps that need healing. And of course, are part of the story of misogyny and, and patriarchy in, in our country and in this world that we'll get into more next week. But I realized that 
some of the worst ways you could hurt or diminish a man is by labeling him or punishing him with something that has uh, that ties to the female experience. Something from the female anatomy can become the worst thing you can say to anybody. Or in football, if I couldn't, if I didn't have the enthusiasm to go hit this guy or tackle this guy with enough force, you might be called something that represents female body part. And that was also true emotionally, not just in the choices that you make, but I could also encounter that with the feelings that would arise. Now we're all human beings and we all have the same algorithms of fear, love, sadness, grief, jealousy. It's all programmed in all in all DNA, but not all have the freedom of expression. And so I've seen this become um, volcanic in different in different men when I work with people in the hospital because they've suppressed some range. And the, there's a parallel to this for women as well to express the so-called dominant emotions like anger could be labeled as crazy. If a man becomes angry or expresses anger, he's strong. He's trying to take control of the situation. But if a man cries and expresses sadness, stereotypically, that could be weak. That could be being like a woman. And in toxic masculinity, God forbid that a man ever be attracted to a man. Because why? Women are attracted to men. So all of this started to make more sense to me as I started to navigate the world as a young man and travel to other countries, to other cultures. Now, when I learned about yoga in India and started to study Eastern philosophy, that's when I started to find the language for expressing the principles of polarity, specifically Taoism and this book that I love and continue to study for years and years, the Tao Te Ching, and you're familiar with that symbol. So before we get into next week about all the ways that masculinity needs to be healed in our culture, I'd like to first lay a groundwork about the principles of polarity. What is polarity? In magnets, you have two poles, a North Pole and a South Pole. Therefore, you have some opposites. And in life, when you have opposites, you have opposition. There's a fear in our culture that one side, one pole could win that the right could totally win and the left could be defeated. But if you think of the underlying unity, it cannot be. No matter how much of the South Pole that you could break away from a magnet, whatever's left becomes the South. You can never remove South. And if you think of a human being, the right and the left hand, They say my right hand is the dominant hand. I'm right-handed. But it's not entirely true that my right hand is stronger than my left. And this is what I think of it with men and women. In life, there's been the, in society, I mean, there's been the attempt to dominate. Domination, social dominance is the insidious disease that we need to cure. But in life, in the body, biologically, the right hand or your dominant hand doesn't try to defeat the other hand. 
there's a harmony there. And in my case, though I'm right-handed, my left hand is actually stronger than my right because I played the guitar my whole life and having to hold the instrument like this and do all the dexterous movements, my left hand can do things that my right hand could never do. That's how I think of men and women also and the expression of these poles, masculine and feminine. It's not binary in the sense that you're either masculine or feminine, right? So like I said before, masculinity is not synonymous with manhood or male. It's more like light and dark, yin and yang. If you look at the Taijitu symbol, there's a small dot in each of the two sides, which means the non-binary aspect that I'm talking about. And it's not either or. The toxic part of our modern culture is that propaganda always makes us feel that everything is either or instead of a little bit of truth here, a little bit of truth there, the seed of the other. You think of this as expressed as day and night in life, in the world. During the day, there are still shadows. There are clouds. The sun goes behind the clouds. You can go behind a building. In the night, there's the moon reflecting some light. You can still see. Even in the land of the midnight sun, there's some darkness. When it's the month of light, there's still shadows. There's, there's still a, a balance, a, a dance, a play. So you can think of these poles as masculine and feminine. And you, you can think of it as light and dark. And you can apply it to your experiences. And you can break free of the limitations of what a man is only allowed to be or what a woman is only allowed to be or, or which of these energies he or she is allowed to give expression to. Then look within the human being and you will find, just like in the Taijitu symbol, that it's all there. Aren't my eyes masculine? They look out. They go out. They grab things, objects, people, and sometimes aggressively. My nose, feminine, the scents go in. My words are always masculine because they protrude and create friction with the air. No matter how sweet my voices could be, whatever I say, how nice it could be, it's still a friction. And my ears are passive, like the yin energy. Whether I want to or not, want them to or not, the sounds go in. And so... The masculine and feminine as it, as it applies to life is within all of us and it's fluid and it's always in perpetual dynamic flux and motion. We look at nature and we see things as static. We look at the weather and we see the cloudy sky. But when you look closely, clouds are moving. You look at the emotion and you see sadness or you see depression. But if you look closer, you see that it's moving. You don't have to push. So the, the subtle part of this symbol is the circle. People don't think of this very much as part of the symbol. The circle represents the absolute. The circle is the container of all the phenomena. The circle is pure awareness. Pure awareness is independent of the poles. In yoga, the, the realization of this, or in Tantra, Tantra has been perverted into just 
how to have better sex or how to prolong enjoyment in sexual activity because the root word tan means to expand. But in the stories of Shiva and Shakti, those weren't just about sexual activity or expanding pleasure. It was about expanding your consciousness until you are the circle. All things are arising in your being. In yoga, this is manifested as the ascension up the chakras in the spine. And these are called poles. You have a north pole and a south pole. One is not bad, one is not good. But when you bring your energy all the way up to the crown chakra and realize God or divinity or the absolute or Tao, in the atom point at the top, there's no more north. If you were to stand on the north pole, which direction is north? It's a metaphor for realization. Then coming back down, any part of the poles, anywhere you find balance or anywhere you want to give expression, you realize it's just the divine expressing itself. All the way back down in the bottom center has nothing to do with evil. The earth is beautiful. It's only when there's not divinity, this is the the union of Shiva and Shakti or nature and spirit, when there is not the consciousness of divinity, what happens? People feel separate from the earth. They try to dominate the earth. They try to own the earth, possess the earth. So selfishness happens. Same within the sexual center. When there's not divinity, there's control and jealousy. And in, in the navel center, there's addiction. There's attachment. In the heart, there is power and control dynamics. In the throat, there's egotism and right and wrong with philosophical systems. Then when we come back up to the soul center, that's when you find the teacher. You find the guide in the cave of the cranium who can take you to the peak, to the top of the Himalayas. I'll pause here. And I just want to summarize by saying that in the in the coming weeks, we're going to explore how we got deviated from this, how this has become patriarchy and social dominance and and given expression to misogyny and so on, why we need to heal that, what we can do to bring that more into balance so that these poles are not in competition but in cooperation and can have full expression in the human being. And then we'll look at what it means to be a man in, in this world, how we can support young men, because in a changing climate, without mentorship, boys and young men can get confused about how they're supposed to uh, how they're supposed to take care of themselves and mature emotionally. So the last part of this series will explore individual emotional maturity and the spiritual man in the 21st century. So I'll pause there. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to begin this series today, to connect with all of you. I look forward to your reflections and your questions. And here we are with the Seahorse series. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you, everybody. I'll start it off with, um, I loved um, the idea of recognizing, because this is a big thing for me, recognizing the inequity around expression like that just breaks my heart 
to think that we say, what we say to our men about like, shut it down, zip it up. We don't want to see you cry. We don't want to know your emotions. Like that just makes me emotional. So um, how do we begin to move into a more equality around that? I imagine one thing is just to make space for it, but are there other ways of um, supporting someone from recognizing their equal rights around expression, uh, expressing emotions as opposed to just uh, expressing thoughts? That is, you know, so, so well put and so important. And one of the clearest signs of this imbalance is the difficulty for some men to say, I love you, especially to another man or for, for boys to be able to tell their friends that they love them. I think stereotypically there would be a little hesitance there a little reluctance because of the the misogyny around the softness of love and compassion. So what I, I think is needed is for for us to teach the the power of vulnerability, the the courage, the strength that's involved with being able to be authentic and honest. So I I was able to gradually grow into that freedom of expression with emotion, but it was only because I had the foundation of my family. So even if the whole world rejected me in my honest expression in my songwriting or in my relationships, I knew that my family accepted me. And so not everybody has that. That's what I've realized. But we as a spiritual community have to create that kind of space where people can be vulnerable with their with their truth and can can express themselves and the the gentleness or the softness or the the tenderness of of that side of of the human emotional experience ought to be able to be expressed and there is a subtle power in that and a healing power in that and if we can create spaces for young men to understand that I think that will go a long way for them finding balance um, in the relation in the relationships that they have thank you anyone else have any thoughts on that um hi this is Jim um I really hi there I'm sorry I'm I'm just an icon um (laughs) not a not a face because I'm moving around a lot. And um, I, I was just thinking about the idea of forgiveness and how much both on both sides, there's these traumas that come up and then everyone's has to feel protected. Uh, they feel like, you know, and, and, and then there's resentments and all those things that build up these walls and make it unsafe to be um open to vulnerability and safety you know it's so so that's that's a big tall order to ask someone who's been traumatized whether it be male or female how to you know to but that's the work to me is is that work of um compassion and forgiveness yeah 
Yeah, that's that's a non-gender thing. It's compassion and forgiveness fits fits everybody. One size fits all. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe, and you make a good point though about forgiveness being on the soft side. It could be hmm. uh, categorized as feminine energy. The, the yeah, you know the that healing and nurturing that goes with forgiveness. But why? why it might be hard for some men in some cultures and some family experiences to not forgive because of the apparent power of a grudge or the mm. masculinity of holding on and and you also see that in the seahorse it's a symbol of power because its tail is strong and it will grab onto something and hold on when it's not doing that the seahorse is actually not a good swimmer but it trusts the current of the ocean and flows with the, uh, goes with the yeah. flow of, of, the, sure. of the sea. Can I say is, um, you made me uh, think of, in terms of vulnerability, uh, or, or and, and really the, the courage and the power of vulnerability. I, I had a friend in college who I, I think unwittingly taught me the power of vulnerability, because he would cry um, uh, openly in front of us, in front of his friends, just when, when he was moved by something. And I think he had the benefit of being six foot nine and he was <laughs> a, a huge man and uh, everyone loved him, but he was not afraid to to weep if, if, if his heart moved him. And that, I mean, and I don't know that we ever spoke of it, but that was, he was a way shower for me. And I now, um, I cry all the damn time. I'm, I'm a school teacher and I, I cried just this past week. I finished my um, school year with my students. And, <laughs> you know, for every class, I end up saying goodbye to them. And I, I, I cry and I, because I, I feel a, a range of emotions, you know, pride and, and, and guilt for not being better um, teacher for them and, and envy for, you know the, the the worlds that are opening to them and i'm like yeah next year i'm gonna still be a teacher and you're gonna be doing amazing things and um but uh i don't i really don't feel embarrassment about that and um i feel like as men that's one thing we can do is, is just like be way showers for others and um you know emotions are great and vulnerability is power not weakness um, but that's not that's not what we're taught in um, you know mainstream media and, and, and most of society I think thanks for sharing that well that's really beautiful and and exactly right I think that's that's what we can do we can model that healthy expression and show you know the young younger people people that look up to us, that we're mentoring or teaching in your case, we can show that emotions come and they go. And when you don't bottle them up, when you don't suppress them, when you don't judge them, you can take care of them. You can take care of yourself. It's, it's sort of like inner weather. Yeah, there's going to be cloudy days. Yeah, there's going to be waterworks. And then the clouds will part and it will make the other experiences that much more beautiful as well. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's powerful inspiring to me too i feel like i could i could do a better job on that front so thanks will yeah it seems like some careers 
give more permission for that. Like I know that his tall friend was an artist and I know that Will came from being an, an actor. And so, um, and even the role of a teacher kind of feels like you're around children. So you're closer to being able to uh, appreciate um, emotions. So I wonder if it's also about the roles that we play and what roles we allow to have more emotional expression, but. Um. You know, I just wanted to say it's really interesting. I learned vulnerability uh, from my therapist who is male and he's the one that showed me um, how to be able to feel that and welcome that. I still hate it. I think it's the worst ever. And I know when I begin to feel vulnerable because it's like that, um, it's a really visceral feeling for me because it comes up and I'm like, and he's like, yes, let's lean into that. And I'm like, no, let's not lean into that. Right? I'm like, I want no part of that. And I feel really inspired by him. And so he's helped my husband and I sit with it and welcome that because neither of our families um, have any idea how to do that. And so I appreciate you, Todd, talking about that experience for men and if Matt were sitting next to me, I think he would really echo that. And you were saying that um, something along the lines of not that families oftentimes, like our um, families of origin, have a hard time showing that. And this is interesting, Beth and Maureen and I have been talking about this with my family and I had a really difficult experience this past week. And then I chose forgiveness and reached out to my family of origin and extended that and had this amazing experience where they broke down crying and were like, I didn't know how to just show up and, and just ask you if you were okay. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to just say, I'm sorry for what happened. So yeah, this community is the one that has shown me how to be like, it's okay. Maybe we can forgive ourselves and then help them understand how to do that um anyway powerful stuff thanks you guys thank you megan that was that was really amazing sharing and gave me a, a, a few reflections i'll just say, say quickly because i know other people have their hands raised but in my recent experiments i still get scared with vulnerability and i, and I sometimes turn back from that as well but in the experiments I'm doing, and, and I, that's why I think like therapy is important and creating spaces like this where people can safely experiment in a non-judgmental zone. But I'm learning that I can live with the outcomes of being vulnerable. Like I could tell somebody I love them or I feel hurt or something. I can't live very well anymore with the inauthentic aspect of myself or I can't live with um, the closed version of myself that I'm not at peace with when when I give that expression respectfully assertively then I feel like I can I, I'm already good I'm practicing being good and unattached to the outcome we can never control the shape things take we can only control the motive behind the choice behind the expression no matter what choice one makes um, the shape the universe will take can can be any which way. So I think learning that can give people the courage to be vulnerable as well. Thank you. Yeah, and 
just last thing is what I said to my sister is, I just wanted you to validate what I was feeling. Right, wrong, or crazy, what was coming out of my mouth. What I needed you to say was, it's okay. Like, I understand what you're feeling. Just validate it. And instead, what she was so quick to do was just reassure. We're gonna solve it. It's gonna, like, let's move on. And I was like, but it gets me stuck in my emotions when somebody doesn't validate them. So, thanks. I think that's so important because you taught me that, Megan. And it's so uncomfortable as problem solvers of the world to not pr solve the problem, to just be be in the current experience of the rainstorm. Like it's just raining right now. Don't try and rush to the sunlight or to say, we're gonna mop this up so we don't have to deal with the, the, the rain. It's like, it's so uncomfortable. And I, I know that you appreciate that because you and I are just like, just let me fix you and save you. Like, I don't want you to experience any emotions that are not positive. Mm -hmm. I know, <laughs> he's laughing. Because it's the truth and it's a hard it's a hard habit to break to just make space so thanks for sharing that key tool of validation you know i understand what you're feeling i see that you're feeling this it's just a script i need to tattoo on my eyeballs <laughs> so hi todd thank you so much and i really really enjoyed that so good to see you again yeah, good to see you too. I loved last week with you. Oh, thank you so much. My question, I suppose, is around, um, I'm just looking at two of my daughters who at the moment are in very strong, I suppose, expressions of more what you'd call a feminist. Um, one of them got up this morning and she was wearing a t-shirt and it said, a bitch is a woman with boundaries. And, you know, I noticed a reaction in me to the t-shirt and, you know, we had an interesting discussion about it. But I suppose I'm wondering, could you speak to how do we rebuild, I suppose, the trust between the masculine and the feminine, both within ourselves, but outside ourselves is what I'm really thinking, where men feel safe with women and women feel safe with men to move into that place of absolute vulnerability where I think the healing will occur, but even just steps towards just rebuilding the trust. And well, I really appreciate that question and that, that point. I meet with a lot of people in the hospital and a lot of women confide in me that they are confused about what the feminist movement is or where they fit in. And there's a new kind of stereotype for young women. What I, what I think would be helpful, and again, this is just my perspective, I think, I'm very open to what else could possibly be helpful to to bring healing and harmony. Is like I was saying in the beginning, I I don't think it's helpful for bringing about more harmony in society to make masculinity synonymous with manhood and femininity synonymous with women. I do think there are women's issues in our country specifically just like unequal pay, things like that. And that may or may not have something to do with how feminine a woman is. It may have nothing to do with that, or may have little to do with that, but it does have a lot to do with sex. Uh, so so I think there's some, some issues that get conflated 
and then actually hold people back. And I wouldn't doubt that all of that are tools of the patriarchy, because again, when you when you divide the group that's oppressed, it's very hard for them to, like women as a whole, to achieve the changes, not really achieve, remove the barriers. Freedom is never something that's acquired. It's always something, freedom is actually freed by removing the constraints. But so long as you can conflate some of these issues, I think some of those constraints being removed will be delayed. Um, and yeah, and so there's, there's, a, there's a new kind of problem with being boxed into certain stereotypes where feminine, feminine and masculine get mixed up and young women feel like they have to be masculine because they were denied the expression of masculine energy. But that creates a certain kind of almost mental mental health crisis for some women. A lot of young women that I see in the hospital will say, I have anxiety disorder because society pressures me so much to build my career, to be independent, to be my own person, to not need a man, for instance. And at the same time, I'm ready to be a mom. I want to be a mom. But if I do that, I feel as though I'll fail the feminist movement in my 20s. And how, how do you live up to all that? You know, so my, my, my response is, again, to all this is holding space and letting people really unpack these concepts, bringing in indigenous wisdom, bringing in wisdom from the East and the West so that we can understand the principles of polarity and begin to unpack these issues and understand what what we really all care about i think so many people actually care about the same things but because some of this gets conflated we get confused and we end up fighting each other thank you for bringing that to light mia yeah thank you and i think actually listening now and tying pieces together with i think it was mari earlier was saying and it also it, it kind of comes back as well i'm seeing in my daughters to actually needing that space to be heard before the healing occurs, if that makes sense. So yeah, there's, um, thank you. Thank you so much. I do think it's time for new spirituality. Not, not that like feminine and masculine will, will be reinvented, but I think families, individuals, couples can create their own rituals together and men's groups ought to create safe spaces where something becomes ritual. We meet monthly and we open our hearts to each other. We meet on the full moon and in the light of the full, full moon, we take a vulnerable step in our life. And the ritual is about marking transitions. This is what's lacking in or missing in modern culture in terms of wisdom. And this is also a problem with aging. Our culture is becoming more and more resistant to aging and maturing. Nobody wants to grow old, but we all have to die. And younger people are not able to see what elderhood looks like. They're not getting good mentorship. So they are struggling with the transitions through life because there's no rituals and there's no guidance. A lot of mental illness manifests after high school because it's a transition from youth to adulthood. But since everybody wants to be a youth forever and wants to be beautiful and young forever, K 
kids don't know how to successfully navigate that transition. In indigenous cultures, like you talked about, I, I, I'm no expert at all, and I don't, I don't want to claim that I have any special knowledge of indigenous rituals, but the little bit that I'm aware of from talking to friends in, in those communities is that there were people who were mentors. There were wise people that would lead a young man or woman into into the transition and part of that transition is being vulnerable so like the vision quest was would happen in some in some traditions with the young man or woman and they would have to go to a place they've never been to before so that they could be more thrown into uncertainty but the elder would be waiting on the other side they're there to initiate it they're there on the other side that's what's special about the rituals that you're talking about or the men's groups or women's groups that that people have support through a transition. That transition might be in the stages of life. It might be healing from divorce. It might be a stage of grief. It might be from one job to another, or it might be in the blossoming of our emotional maturity. I'm going to take this step and tell another man how much I love and appreciate him or tell my friends that I love them. And I never felt free to do that before. So it's a trans- transition. And if I have rituals and support, then um, it, will, it will wire a new pathway in the brain. The ritual actually takes place in special parts of the brain that helps synthesize different synapses in a way that we may have never used before so that in the future we have more courage to be vulnerable again. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to add one thing before Beth comes in. Um, you know, what you're talking about, Todd, in regards to mentorship and um, going to places that you don't know that you can go to. Um, for me, the modern version of that is already been mentioned um, by Mario, is the 12 step. You know, that you get this sponsor and this person has your back and it's so scary to build trust with somebody but usually they have what you want. And, you know, Speakeasy was created around the the concepts of 12-step, but I wanted to, like, create a community that you didn't have to be a broken-winged person to get the benefits of a 12-step type program. And because that's also stigmatized as well. So it's kind of like we've taken all of our rituals and just kind of, like, tossed them out the window and, and not realizing what we've lost. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but... Um, but I do know that there are, there are, there is availability in the 12 step for having some of those things. Um, yeah, I just, I'll just want to add real quickly on that. You're so right. That's why 12 step has worked for millions of people when they truly open their heart to it. Big part of it is the safe space, the support, and there's rituals all along the way. And there's mentorship. This actually works for people without addictions. I've encouraged people without addictions or just with depression or self-harm or uh, anxiety. Turn to the the wisdom of the 12 steps, find your own rituals, and it works. It's a a philosophy of life. And you're right, we need to bring that wisdom that is there for when people hit rock bottom and make it more accessible to all people so that they don't have to hit a rock bottom before they could be exposed to support and wisdom and mentorship. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
I just want to say how much I'm appreciating and enjoying this conversation, first of all. And uh, Todd, uh, you so beautifully shared, you know, the concepts of polarity. And when you talked about if you break off, you know, one pole, the part that's left is going to be that pole and how like you think you're getting rid of something, but you can't. That's just not how it works. And so I, what came to my mind um, that I'd love for you to share if you have any wisdom on this is in those moments when um, there's kind of a, an amputation or sort of like, I don't need this anymore uh, kind of energy, whether it's like, I don't need men anymore or, you know, I don't need women anymore or any sort of way of attempting to amputate an aspect of who we are uh, in that moment what kind of wisdom or tool do you have to offer for right there in that place thank you Beth it's um, a great question personally I think this is where the wisdom of meditation comes in and that is the container of the, of the yin-yang symbol. When you practice meditation, when you get triggered, if, if we can learn to step back, that's the time when it is night in our relationship, when you're like, I can't do this anymore. With the principles of polarity, you'll see that night is not evil. Good and evil is more human construct, social construct. But night simply means nature is telling you to retreat and tend to the light in your heart. If we stripped away all the layers in this spiritual community, we're pretty sure that what remains is light, light of the soul, light of divinity. So all, all of it exists within us. That's what meditation will reveal to a person also. Whatever you see is the hardship externally is a projection of what exists internally. Nobody is free from a thought of jealousy their whole life, the thought of aggression, the, the thought of ill coming to someone at some point in their life. These are just natural phenomena that arise. And yet when it's given full expression in our external environment, we feel like that, that is the evil, right? And it makes our heart want to completely close. But what I would encourage instead is to see that as an extreme expression of the nighttime. And when people try to force their way through and work through the night, they don't have the, en the right energy. But it's not evil because if you retreat in the right way, if you step back with patience and tending to your own inner resources and guarding your own inner light, the season of night passes or the season of winter passes. It's more about knowing how we, how we can be in terms of the spectrum of masculinity and femininity depending on the circumstances of our life, even in a relationship. A relationship is not a thing. It's a series of, it's a sequence of experiences that you have with another person. They're not all going to be clear experiences. It's not going to be sunny every day. And that's nature 
and not seeing it as good and evil will help a person know how to respond wisely. But meditation is the tool, and um, the the word for evening and sunset, all these transitions in the day and noon and midnight in Sanskrit, in the ancient language of yoga and meditation, was sandhya, which is a compound word, samyaktyana, which meant any time a transition is coming, practice dhyana, which is meditation. Whenever you hit these roadblocks, treat it as the transition of the day. Time for me to step back and tune into my inner light and then come back when the when the circumstances are different. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, Todd. Sherry, you're up. And just one more thing real quick. So it becomes toxic when we think my masculinity will take control of the situation. This person not listening to me, well, I'll make them listen by shouting or, or God forbid, by becoming aggressive or becoming violent. That's all the, the unnaturalness of uh, the of the situation. So in Chinese wisdom, there's something called Wu Wei, which means natural naturalness or natural unnaturalness or unnatural naturalness, where like the seahorse, you're not resisting the current, you're working with the current. When you go against nature, the real ill is, is that there is delusion. The person sees themselves as separate from, from nature. And as a separate ego, they could get control of the situation. That is the real, the real ill, or if you could say a sin, is just feeling as though you're an independent entity in the universe separate from divinity. Thank you. Sherry? Morning, Todd. Thank you for all that you said. You have unpacked so much that I'll be thinking about for days. You've joined the list of people that I'd love to have dinner with so that I could ask you question after question after question. But one question that I have in my mind right now is so many of us have had to be both, both by being parents without partners. So therefore you are soft when you need to be soft, but you're not soft when you you need tough when you need to be tough but then there comes a time when you want to date or step out from that situation and it's like who shows up the soft person or the hard person um is it supposed to be a fluid thing this moving from masculine to feminine can it be one level or are you you understanding what I'm asking? I'm not understanding what I'm asking. I think but I, I think share. what I'm asking is really, are you saying is it supposed to be something that just goes like this throughout our lives for balance? Or can you be half and half for balance? That's that's my question. Thank you, Sherry. It's a beautiful question, and it ties into what we will it's a great segue for next week as well, because it's gonna tie into the limitations that are created by culture so it, it part of the pain of being a single parent is thinking that I ought to be able to fit into one of these two sides or somewhere on the spectrum and get to exist as that exist as that but as I said like in my own upbringing both my father and mother 
were masculine and feminine at different times. And in that moment, like if I was in crisis with my mother somewhere, in that moment, she can't rely on my father or I can't rely on my father and vice versa. So the reality is in life, we have all of this within us. Society though tells us we have to be defined. Society is always what is reflecting an image onto us. The the mirror of society. Without society, you go into the woods and you go walking in nature, you have you have no identity that you have to prove to the trees, to the nature. It's society that does this to us, that tries to define us. But again, with support, we can understand that we're safe to be whatever we need to be in the moment. And, and that applies also to the relationship. So even if we were a single parent, when we come to a relationship, it's still going to be dictated by the nature. So for example, if my partner has something to express, can I be the compliment in that moment? Can I be the receiver? Well, receiving is feminine. The ears are feminine. Can I listen? But if I force my masculinity, what happens? Masculinity becomes toxic in that moment when the man thinks, I will fix you. I will fix your situation. And it's, it's quite common, quite normal. And that that's also a, a cultural conditioning. But validation isn't trying to fix, it's about holding space. And the man may do that, the woman may do that, if, if the man has something to express. So there's always a dance. And if we understand that, Sherry, the, the beauty of it is we can accept ourselves in each moment. We can have love for ourselves, knowing that the each moment will show us how to be. And we can respond wisely. We can we can be the partner with life in that way, the co-authors with life. It's a dance and all of it exists within us. The light is within us always. So whatever darkness is there is always with the light of, of our own being, of our own consciousness. So thank you. This will be our final question before our final song and our pray out, but so grateful for all of the contributions to this conversation and we will, you know, be moving it forward for the next two weeks. So, and maybe beyond. So um, be sure to come back and invite your friends for our final questions with Cinnamon. Hi. Um, so I just wanted to um, comment on some of the things that, you know, Todd's brought up. This is such a good conversation. And one is about, the need for rituals and um oh gosh you just mentioned it oh about not needing to prove your identity to the trees and i think it's so important when we think of the context of how young people are starting to use develop and use different labels for themselves so it's not just this cisgender binary of male or female it's trans it's non-binary it's two-spirit it's gender fluid so as we have this conversation about masculinity um, I also want to bring into context of, of beyond just how we are identified or how we're labeled at birth, as in what does it mean to have rituals of um, stepping into adulthood or adolescence or even older age if you don't identify as a man or a woman? There's still masculine and feminine energy. So how do we have those conversations and teach our young people and ourselves, because we have a lot of learning to do, how do we bring those conversations into the fuller gender spectrum? Um, 
And I know it seems like the young folks are slicing gender and sexuality into a million different slices, but I think they are challenging us to come out of this framework that even I was raised with, where there's just this or that. And it really speaks to Todd's point of masculinity being less about these are the genitals you have and this is how you were raised and more about just moving through the world in a sense that's perceived as masculine, um, masculine energy, as it were. So I think it's a very interesting discussion, particularly if you talk about men's and women's groups. What does that mean when someone's binary? What does that mean when someone is trans? And that will make people uncomfortable because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of wounds around how these genders have interacted with each other. And so I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, we, as you know, folks who didn't really, maybe didn't grow up with those labels, have to do some unlearning and get uncomfortable before we can, I think, really embrace masculinity and femininity residing within one person. So that's all I just wanted to uh, mention today. Thank you. There's a lot of wisdom in what you said. Um, and, and it speaks to a couple things that I'm a little bit familiar with, with my training with a, with a master in India. The master there um, doesn't do the ritual with, with me or with anybody at a set moment in your life. And similarly, in some indigenous cultures, it's not like you do the vision quest on your 16th birthday, no matter what. The mentor working with the young person and learning the contents of their heart decides together when is it time for the transition. So that's something that's missing in our society and it's missing in our education. We do our education and mass. So everybody goes from first grade to second grade at the same time, whether you're a visual learner or whether you're an auditory learner or a kinesthetic learner, it's challenging. Will would probably know this and anyone who teaches here. It's, it's challenging to meet your standards and also give what you know each child needs in the way that they learn. So it can't always happen in every, in every one of these uh, systems. But in our families, in our spiritual circles, we can help people make those transitions based on understanding, acceptance, and love. Getting to know the true vulnerable contents of a person's heart, we can build our rituals and our support, and we can seek out wisdom and mentorship from people who have been through that transition. So, yeah, I think it's a great point. It's something that I think we're still building as a society. And that masculinity and femininity is, isn't binary in the sense that you're either here or here. It's, it, it could be like a dial where there, you're right. There are infinite turns of expression, if infinite modes of expression um, with, with that whole spectrum of energy. And it's all within us. Uh, my name is Maureen Muldoon. I'm the spiritual director of Speakeasy, and it's great to see everybody here. We love being in community with you. We um, 
love that you made time to hang out with us today. I find this topic to be vitally important for the evolution of our consciousness. Uh, so I think that this is the kind of information you can bring and apply in your life. Um, if this is your first time here, welcome. If this is your second time here, welcome back. If this is your third time, you know, I hope that you find um, this a, uh, a fun place to hang out. We have tons of things to offer here, not just our Sunday morning conversations. If you're, this is your first time listening to Todd, uh, buckle up and um, just let yourself uh, be open to all of the concepts that he's going to bring to us today. Uh, because an open mind is a very helpful thing to have. Um, I, I, I always think about that, um, that story where the teachers, you know, the student wants to know and know and know and know. And the teacher says, okay, let's have some tea. And she she pours the tea into the cup, but she keeps pouring and pouring and pouring. And the student says, what are you doing? And she says, well, you know, you, you, ha you came with a full cup. Like you need to empty yourself. So hopefully that meditation helps us to empty ourselves and empty yourself a little bit so that you can receive. That's all I'll say about that. Please give a warm welcome to Todd Fink. It's so great to be back. I'm always uh, grateful and privileged to connect with this beautiful community over the years. And today is part two of our Seahorse series. Just a, a quick review of why it's called the Seahorse series. We feel that the seahorse is a magical creature. It uh, is a symbol of mysticism and good fortune in many different cultures. It's a good luck charm for divers and sailors. But for our purposes, it has a unique family structure where the male seahorse has a pouch, sort of like the kangaroo. And the male seahorse holds the eggs and brings the brings the children to to maturity and also has some conventional or stereotypical roles in the family of protecting the female. It is not a very good swimmer, the seahorse, and so it tends to work with the current of the sea or the ocean. And there's a beautiful metaphor in that working with the divine currents in life, trying to find the natural flow for all of us. And it does have a tail that can hold on to something. So it does have the ability to, to steady itself or stabilize itself. But there are just a few beautiful qualities that we highlighted last week. And Maureen had been seeing seahorses and I had been seeing seahorses around me just like I found a, a belt buckle that had a seahorse on it and I felt attracted to it and I've been wearing that. So it just, there was enough synchronicity where we thought this, this is a, um, a beautiful way to sort of capture the, the message here. And as I was saying before, when I, when I let people know that this is what I'm talking about for, the, for a few weeks, people's eyes kind of get big because they know this is a loaded topic. And uh, I definitely feel a, a little bit of um, a little bit of nerves entering into that space because, like Maureen said, we may not have all the answers. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I look around me and I see division, I see confusion, I see young men and 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 women and people of all genders and orientations um, hungry for guidance through transitions for mentorship and. As I grow older in life and I look back on my experiences, my mistakes, my failures, my relationships, what went right, what went wrong, I do feel inspired to share what I've learned and 
and my perspective, right or wrong, just to to give any guidance that I may be able to share and also encourage people to break down taboos around these topics. That's pretty much my whole purpose with my podcast is not to answer the questions, but to tackle taboos so that people can have conversations and safe spaces and together we can find solutions to reduce suffering in the world, to heal divides and find common ground. And today we're, we're moving into this part two of this series, which is going to focus a little bit more on domination and what we call the patriarchy and, and how the, these energies. We, so last week we defined masculinity and femininity to some extent, and we were able to discern that between being a man or being a woman. And the seahorse also points out that there is something of a construct when it comes to masculinity and femininity. But today we're looking at how that energy becomes what we would say is toxic. And so I, I find this part of the series to be potentially triggering. Um, maybe it, it would be hard to to agree on some of these points. So I'll just be simply raising points and, and theories just to initiate curiosity and dialogue. So if we can all hold space for each other as, as we explore this, and if strong feelings come up, just know that I'm ready to listen and to hear your experience, even if it's different from mine. And I'm open to amending what the view from, from where I sit looks like. I, I would love to know what things look like from, from your point of view. And, and before I go deeper into this, I would like to share a poem from the book that I'm working on that Maureen mentioned that I feel summarizes in a better way than I even did last week, the, the principles of polarity and it's called principles of polarity. Yin and yang, soft and hard, dark and light, passive and aggressive, feminine and masculine, all within and without me. My eyes go out and my nose goes in. My speech protrudes and every word is always a friction with the air while sounds penetrate my ears. In activity, I can give. In sleep, I can receive. My logic is rigid, but my intuition is fluid. Myriad possibilities for balancing my energy. One pole cannot eliminate the other. There is always a south pole on a magnet, no matter how much bottom breaks away. Therefore, so-called evil is never the final fact. The Taijitu symbol in Taoism has five parts. Two larger black and white sections, two small black and white dots. The one circle holding everything represents the absolute. The art of living is in the dance of existence with these qualities. So, in love, be the complement. Listen without waiting to speak. Lead and follow with the same enthusiasm. Validate without trying to fix. In tyranny, be the opposition. Amplify the voice of the vulnerable. Wield the power of community. Move as a living shrine of peace. In superficiality, be the antithesis. Inspire through authentic joy. Guard your inner light. Make your heart a deep well. In nature, be the unison. 
synchronize with the rhythms of the earth, embody the cycles and seasons, plug into the big battery, and in meditation, be the container. Witness with equanimity, go beyond duality, and enjoy total freedom. So that poem tries to summarize the meaning of polarity and that we are all of these energies, all these patterns exist within our body, within our heart, within our mind. And there are times to draw upon the feminine, the sacred feminine, the sacred masculine. And I tried to highlight a few in nature, in war, in love, so that we can encourage specifically now men to be able to open their hearts, to listen, to be able to um, let go of stereotypes when the moment calls for it. It's about responding to life, dancing with life in a particular way. Today we're exploring the, the concept of domination and how the, the qualities within masculinity become harmful when imbalanced, like aggression, violence, um, narcissism. So what is social dominance? There was a theory that developed in the 90s. Um, I, I can't remember the psychologist off the top of my head, but they developed a theory called social dominance theory. And it's about how civilizations organize themselves into hierarchies. And they found three common hegemonic groups. Now, hegemonic means where the power and political influence is concentrated at the top. The top of these pyramids could be one age. So people who are older have more power than people who are younger, and specifically adults have more power than children. And this is pretty universal across all cultures and civilizations. However, I'd like to point out here that it's not always that way. Uh, if you ever saw Seven Years in Tibet, you saw a depiction of the young Dalai Lama having uh, ruling ruling the country and meeting the the Western the Westerner um, who found himself stranded there during the war and. And so it's that's not entirely uh, universal, but it but it almost is. And in in our own homes and families, we can think of this balance of power in in a different way. It doesn't have to be about controlling children. I I meet with families all the time, talk to people throughout my life, and it's really amazing to see how that power dynamic often never changes throughout life. Parents. And uh, adult children still have this power play, power struggle going on. The 70-year-old parent is still trying to control the 40, 50-year-old son or daughter. Poet Gibran said really beautifully about raising children that children do not come from us, they come through us. And it's not right to try to make your children like you but it's all right for you to try to be like your child because they are of the future and we have a ceiling, meaning as far as we can rise or as far as we can see, they will see farther than we can. 
I know there will come a time where a younger generation will be able to see things that I never could when I was their age. So in a sense, they're also my teacher. Their vulnerability by being smaller or weaker is just um, a technicality. So my responsibility then may be considered stewardship as a parent uh, rather than control and domination. So there are different ways of framing this, this power structure so that I may be more like more like a steward of the development of children, but not somebody in control exclusively. And then the second one is sex, where we see throughout all different times and places, men having more power than women specifically. And we'll come back to that because that's the focus of this talk and I'll try to make it succinct. But the third one is an arbitrary hegemon. Uh, it could be race, like in our country. We have a history of oppression towards people of color in its most egregious manifestation in slavery. And that that's happened in other cultures as well, even, even to this day. It could be bloodline, royal families in Europe, for instance, and, and Asia, having um, all the political power and social power financial power. It could be caste. It could be based on religion. We, we do see religious groups having more power in lots of different religious cultures. In India, you've had the caste system throughout history. It was originally outlined in the Vedas, the, the four holy books of Sanatana Dharma, the, uh, the religion of Hinduism, as I believe, from my study of Sanskrit, a way for an individual to work through their own karma or dharma, but it had been perverted into um, a hierarchy, a social structure, where people were bound to a particular caste by their birth and family line. People who did not want to participate or didn't, for whatever reason, participate in this religious caste system became known as outcasts, and that's where we get the word outcast. And they eventually became known as the untouchables in India, and there was nothing they could do to break free of that bondage. So the Brahmin class was the top priestly class, and they enjoyed considerable power, decision-making, wealth, superiority. The next group is Kshatriya, and that is the warrior class, military people, Krishna, was a kshatriya. He was a, the chariot driver for Arjuna. He was a warrior. Then you have Vaishya, which are business people like merchants, farmers, and so on. And then you have Shudra, which was a serving class, people who uh, essentially performed service for all the, the higher castes. And in more modern times, it created tremendous suffering for people in the lower, lower castes. In our country, we have a tremendous amount of inequality, wealth inequality. So there are social classes or socioeconomic classes that we refer to, and our leaders, our politicians will often talk about helping these different classes or taking care of the middle class, or we need a strong middle class. But could you imagine if a president was saying, we, we have to do this or that for the middle caste? Well, in a sense, we do have a caste system in the United States, a wealth caste system. And for all of these different 
orders of social dominance, you have a legitimizing myth, according to the theorist. The legitimizing myth in the, the caste system in India is that there is some divine order to all of this. With kings and queens, there was something divine in their blood. With racism, there was something inferior about people of color for those who are perpetuating those systems of oppression. But there is a legitimizing myth when it comes to wealth inequality, whether aware of it or not, and that myth is merit. The idea that in our free enterprise system, and this is where capitalism uh, also meets patriarchy, that anybody can become powerful. Because that myth is so strong, the myth of merit, and I say it's a myth because people actually do not move from the bottom quintile to the top quintile. And that's a very large amount of people. The bottom 20% is millions and millions of people. And the top 20%, not talking top 1%, top 20% is also many millions of people, 70 million people. But that bottom 70 is almost never going to go to the top 70. The movement that happens in our country is often within one socioeconomic strata. So there is a sense that, oh, maybe if I worked harder, if I really wanted this, it's possible for me. And there's something called, in psychology, selection bias or survivorship bias. The hegemonic group promotes selection bias so as to reinforce the legitimizing myth that, yes, if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you could you could go into the into the top quintile. And there are celebrity celebrities like athletes, actors and so on, whose stories are told much more than the stories of people who do not experience those kind of things. So, for instance, I grew up both thinking it's very possible to be a famous rock star and it would have been possible for me to be an NBA superstar because I played basketball in Indiana growing up watching Hoosiers and holding a basketball all the time since I was five years old. Nobody told me that at, at that time there had only been 10 people in the world that were my height or, or shorter that ever played in the NBA. So I, I never thought about that. I just learned of the stories of people who went from rags to riches and thought, oh, you know, you just commit to playing and, and, and improving your skills and you go to college and then you go become wealthy and successful. This myth is so strong that the people at the top become the leaders and the heroes. Because if you believe in this myth of merit, then that would mean anyone who is a, a, a politician is wealthy. And for the most part, all our politicians are wealthy. The entrepreneurs, the celebrities, they're all wealthy. And they're not somebody conventionally to be demonized because of the myth. They are actually the heroes of the myth because there was nothing about them in the myth, according to the myth, that makes them inherently powerful. But the reality on the ground is that people in the top quintile never go to the bottom and people in the bottom never go to the top. So all the, the merit talk is really just a meritocracy trap. Now we come to sex with, with men and women. That power dynamic has different theories. There has been long arguments as to why it is. Some have argued throughout history that it's natural, that the primacy of physical strength meant that men had to have more power and the sexual division, women bear children, men do not, meant that 
women were inherently vulnerable throughout history, and therefore men had the responsibility to be strong, to protect their, their partners and their families. However, this doesn't account for different orientations. This doesn't account for genders beyond the binary system or bin binary concept. And technology shows us that even if, it, if we thought it was natural, it may be more historical because the innovation uh, since the Industrial Revolution and since the digital age has changed work and greatly reduced the primacy of physical strength. I also theorize that even if there was a need for physical strength from the men in families, that also could have been part of some kind of selection bias, meaning that if men always selected women who were weaker than them, well, then you would have an evolutionary trait of strength among men and less strength, physical strength and power among women. That, that could have been a possibility. Whereas today, if you take any individual, any two individuals, there's no guaranteed bet who is going to be physically stronger. We, we now know that anybody can become strong. So it also was about opportunity. The political power has never been there historically in our country for women. And part of the hegemonic group's manipulation of lower uh, groups is to create division among them. So women's suffrage was actually delayed because women could not agree on who they actually wanted to be able to vote. White women really didn't want black women to also be able to vote, whereas black men could vote before women could vote. And so th there you have an example of how a hegemon can really keep their foot on the neck. Today, I feel like our lower groups socioeconomically are fighting each other, while those in power, the elite, really go unnoticed, unscathed. You can have people like Elon Musk skate right out onto a progressive TV show like Saturday Night Live. And meanwhile, everybody is fighting about everything else. But the very pinnacle of the hegemon, uh, you know, gets to enjoy the, the comedic experience and we don't even notice. Historian Yuval Noah Harari said that our elites, the billionaire class, for instance, really have power, whereas the hegemonic groups of the past, like kings, did not. And so they had to display power all the time. Kings wore gold on their head and robes to actually look and appear different and display uh, beheadings and things like that to try to prove having power. When reality was, like in the French Revolution, you just hop over the fence and kill the royal family, and all of a sudden, the whole power structure has changed. Today, it's not like that at all. The elites have reached escape velocity, and they appear to be totally normal. A billionaire will just wear a sweater and jeans or a t-shirt and show no sign of having any political influence at all because they actually have power and they don't need to prove it. Um, so. To bring this all together, I think it's important as spiritual people to have compassion. Some people argue that a truly egalitarian society cannot sustain anyway. So you, you look at cultures like Scandinavia, Denmark, and Norway, Sweden, and so on, and that enjoy considerable amount of egalitarianism. Um, other international relations experts would argue that 
they are a more feminine society. And therefore, if a masculine invader, say Nazi Germany, comes intruding, well, then it would be up to a more masculine country like the United States to save them. And so ultimately, when we still have all these separate countries, you have to compete. And so there is what's known as the patriarchy. The patriarchy was developed more recently as a term by modern feminists to replace terms like male chauvinism or sexism, because male chauvinism really seems to point to the behavior of an individual man, whereas calling out the patriarchy really points to the whole system of oppression. And there was a sociologist, Sylvia Walby, that highlights seven overlapping features of the structure of patriarchy, which I think people who are spiritual and care about equality and wanting to work towards attenuating hierarchical structures ought to be mindful of these points. The first one is the state, that women have considerably less formal power or representation in government. The second one is the household, that women are more bound to chores in the house and raising children. Third one is violence. Women are more, uh, are more likely to be victims of abuse, aggression, physical and emotional violence from, from men. And the fourth one is paid work. There is inequality between the paid uh, work of women and men, even when they're doing the same work. Five is sexuality, the domination of men sexually over women and, uh, and the division of, of behaviors, responsibilities, roles in sexuality is, in, is often imbalanced. And of course, people think that it is related to child rearing or giving birth. And there are some legitimizing myths associated with that, like the term, the joy of childbirth or the joy of giving birth. When in reality, it's, it's a very painful experience, I think, as well. I don't know. But the sixth one is culture, that the way women are represented in media and in popular culture within a patriarchal gaze. And this creates some debate over, say, like female influencers on Instagram using their bodies or, or sexualizing their bodies. And one may argue, OK, well, you're just you're just giving men what they want to see. And, and another point of view would be like, well, men have done that and, and women get nothing in return for it. So how is it? patriarchal for me to actually capitalize on uh, on my body and and then um, so you have you have all all these together but but I think it's important just to to open the dialogue and, and also see how within those six points there is an overlap between capitalism and patriarchy so some theorists say that they're intertwined they're they're all parts of the same oppressing system. Capitalism, you could even think of as uh, masculine, as toxically ma masculine. And then the question that we can explore today also is, how do you raise young men if this is the system? And if there is an imbalance, you will see something called hierarchical enhancing, which is what is happening in our culture. The inequality is growing. In, in an egalitarian society or more egalitarian society, the gap between men and women, between the top and the bottom, is not growing. It's shrinking. That's called hierarchical attenuating. 
H-E or H-A. So in our culture, we're seeing growing inequality. And now the question becomes, how do you raise a boy, for instance, in this culture? Because if you raise that son to be competitive, to be masculine, uh, in a sense, stereotypically masculine, they can be successful. If you teach them to be communal, if you teach them to be compassionate, understanding, patient, cooperative, they may not succeed as much in a capital, capitalist patriarchal society. So what what is the way? I don't have all the answers. I do know that I, I simply think that the awareness is important and the conversation is important because I don't think individuals can solve these problems, like the problem of climate change, which is also intertwined in this, because the higher one's acceptance of social dominance, the higher their footprint. And the three societies with the most inequality, the most social dominance, China, India, United States, are the three largest polluters of the planet, the three largest contributors to CO2 gases in the atmosphere. So it all comes together for me in this holistic manner. But we have to bring people together to break down taboos. I don't think individuals can solve it. I think communities can. And I, despite um, the, de the depressing metrics, I still believe there is a, there's hope. So I will pause here and um, turn it back over to Maureen. You gave us so much to talk about. Um, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get to the conversation. I, this is what I believe, Todd. <laughs> and this is why I'm so devoted to the Divine Mother and the Feminine Divine. I believed for a long time that if you wanted to heal the root causes of all of the female issues, then all you would need to do is to give women back a God that resembles them. But what I also feel now is that this also would heal all of the root issues with the masculine as well, because we've been robbed and we have this patriarchal God that has no companionship. And so we, we automatically, from the very top, from our God definitions, we, um, we don't have female leadership. So what else can happen but that everything be led by um, that pointy, pokey, you know, erect um, direction with men. If you put a woman at the top, and when you put a woman at the top, um, it, it becomes, everyone is included, it becomes circular. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, I'm just saying that if we had, if we had the benefit of both of those en energies honored equally in the realm of divinity, I think that we would see a whole different world. And that's my spiel, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And similarly, I don't think placing token women in positions of patriarchal power is the solution in uh, in political structures. But but yeah, it, it's it's evident in religions that there's a largely patriarchal system. And it's interesting also with the power within religious institutions throughout history, because I mentioned the primacy of physical strength. So, okay, if you made an argument that there was a natural or biological element to having more power in terms of protecting the family, the roles of the priestly class, for instance, require very little physical strength. 
And same with um, political leadership doesn't require physical strength. Then you have some people throughout history who argued that women's menstrual cycles made them unfit for decision making because of periods of irrationality and same with menopause and the words around that have even been demonizing there's there's a word in um in some cultures in the west that for hot flashes that women may experience in menopause even the word menopause is unpleasant the word for that in japanese is konenki which means second spring and there are much less medical compl- complications for women in the culture where the word is positive but there's a word for hot flashes that means shame that essentially translates to shame that culture has the highest rate of medical complications during menopause so what i'm saying is that also ignores that men often have episodes of irrationality and are prone to aggression uh, and can can easily be triggered and i've seen it i've seen it in my circles so um starting at the top with bringing feminine sacred feminine energy into that spiritual divinity and leadership is healing i think for us and in and the abrahamic traditions that we've you and i have grown up in uh we see there's a, a father a holy father there's a holy son and there's a holy spirit so you get two men and and and, and, and one neutral and a ghost no wonder and, uh, I was getting ghosted. <laughs> and and I can and I can remember growing up as a Catholic boy looking at the image of the divine mother Mary and I I I felt something. I felt something really palpable in terms of inspiration in terms of healing and it was so strong that I was like right or wrong um, among my culture I'm going to pray to <laughs> and connect with with the the divine mother. So, yeah, I thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh so now is the time for the conversation. And um yeah, anybody want to add their voice to this conversation? Hello. Hi. Um I I may go a little off topic here, but I just want to thank uh Todd for what I like to call like naming the things. Um It, it, there was no punches pulled and so uh starting with talking about patriarchy in the terms of the system rather than just terrible things that are attributed to men and there are things that are typically associated with men we shouldn't ignore that but it brings to the point of we all uphold this and so we are all responsible for dismantling it yes. and um there's just a couple thoughts like when you when Todd when you mentioned how uh the suffragette movement most people do not know that white women did not want black women to vote they it's just this so they were oh it was just all kumbaya no it was not and even within the um lesbian movements of like the 50s and the 60s that was a huge issue which why you had people like Audrey Lord is Audrey Lord get my historical elders confused but that's where identity politics came into play of because of these identities that i hold working towards equality for these identities means equality for all um and so again i just love the fact that um 
in looking at patriarchy, we have to look at the ways that we are problematic. I think that like Franz Fanon said, the oppressed have to be careful about becoming the oppressors as they work to gain their own power. And we see that with the issue with white feminism. And a lot of times spiritual circles, this is why like I don't have a lot of patience for them. It's like, well, if you just put up like, you know, a vision board and you know, if you just like do your yoga and I'm like, yeah, well, if I don't have like two jobs, I have to work, kids I have to take care of. Um, if I don't have a higher education, that's gonna be a little more challenging. You know, I may not be able to pay $500 for a getaway to do whatever I need to do to be an entrepreneur. Now what? And then another thing sort of related to what you said, Todd, is this bootstrap theory, which irritates the fuck out of me. It really does because it's, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my impression of what you were saying, it's not about, like, if you want to achieve something, do it. But we have this, we seem to have this moral thing where we associate people with large houses or having multiple cars or having lots of money as morally better. Oh, well, they are good people. So that's why they have this money. The person who collects my garbage is not because, you know, they didn't, maybe they didn't go to college. Um, a lot of parents would be outraged if their kids didn't go to college and finish. And so it's this thing where, yeah, it's no, there, I don't think there's any issues with wanting to work from one stratosphere to the next, but what if you don't make it to that top tier? Are you, have you failed at life? What if you don't want to work to that top tier or whatever it is? What if you are happy with where you're at? Is, is that acceptable? Are you just as successful as someone who is a, you know, entrepreneur doing their thing? If you, you know, just want to be a manager of a store. I think about the guys who help move my furniture into my house. That's a very blue collar, labor intensive job. You know, I can't imagine these guys are going to like have second homes unless they own the company. But the guy who was leading them was an amazing person. He was conversational. He was personable. He talked about like his six cats. And you can tell this guy really loved his job. Is he a failure because he doesn't like have a lake house, you know, or have floor to ceiling windows? I mean, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, assume. Mm -hmm. But generally those are associated with people who have white collar jobs. And again, that plays into the patriarchy of that sort of hierarchical caste system that you talk about that we all, all uphold. Yes, men do need to examine their privilege. You know, there are certain things that there are fewer barriers. If we think of privilege as more of what barriers do you have? Men, particularly white, cis, able-bodied, straight men do have fewer barriers. Even if they were raised poor, they still have fewer barriers to access. And it really does come down to an access issue. I'm not saying don't pity folks who make less than minimum wage. I'm not talking about that. It's what are we doing? What is it? Why is getting to the top tier this bootstrap? Why is that the goal? And why not just creating the best life for everybody wherever they're at, making sure people have access, but then not shaming them if they don't, I don't know, make it to this American dream, whatever that is. I mean, I'm pretty much failing at it, so I don't really care anymore. But um, yeah, so I, I really thought you brought up some good points because these are things that don't get discussed. White feminism doesn't get discussed in spiritual circles. 
um, this bootstrap theory doesn't get discussed in spiritual circles. This is spiritual work. This isn't just about karma, which I think the West has perverted a little bit, but let's not go there. Um, this is about how we're living our lives, how we live with each other, how we're interdependent. And that's it. I'm gonna go move some furniture because I'm like so hyped up. I gotta do something with the energy. I'm gonna go move my energy. So much wisdom. Thank you so much wisdom, Cinnamon. I appreciate all your reflections. And I'll just just quickly add that yes, I, I think it's it's toxic when you have a system where the only way somebody could avoid that kind of exploitation is by adopting toxic masculine elements of aggression of greed the culture has made a virtue out of greed and and that's tragic and that's why we're seeing this the kind of suffering that we are because it's not natural for people to want to over acquire and to the to the degree that one's floor space has expanded or one's square footage of their home that has also correlated with the increase of loneliness in america as well so the, there's just so many public health issues here. And so, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I think it's unfortunate that a person who wants to do what you, the kind of work you described and, and have meaningful relationships, that they could actually suffer greatly under this, this kind of system. And so therefore, it, I brought up that question. So how do you raise a person? Because you don't want your children to suffer economically. But when the minimum wage has been seven twenty-five for the past twelve years, and we'll see subscriptions to anything, Netflix, whatever, like just double in any given year, the inflation is exponentially growing, and and people are going to suffer tremendously. They already are. They have through the pandemic, especially. But but that's why it's important to have these conversations to think about not how can we succeed in that patriarchal capitalist system but how can we all work together to build harmony to build harmony for all yeah that's great thank you cinnamon you've got a sermon in you i got my eye on you you're going to be up here <laughs> with the whole 20 minutes anybody else want to share anything or yeah joni I, d I just had a, a wonderful, listening to you, I had a wonderful opportunity when you asked about how can we raise children, in particular boys, and I got to reflect on what I fell into by living in Ann Arbor. So I'm wondering, as I reflect back on not only my own children, but the children that were in my daycare, we had exposure to a Waldorf education. All of the children had some kind of religion uh, training, religious training not all the same. We lived in a very diverse cultural city. Uh, service was a big part, I noticed. In the daycare, all the children, regardless of age or gender, participated in the chores. And now my cat's complaining again. Sorry, I'm going to have to do something about that. They also were exposed to nature and team sports versus individual sports. Um, and then the result, I've just flashed through a number of these children that I've known since birth through and watching them on Facebook. There is not a huge amount of consumerism and capitalism. They, there are, um, they're all over the world. 
they're all different um, interests and my three children one is a pastor in LA one works in China and the other one is in the Park Service in the UP so when I wonder about it I wonder if it's the exposure that we can look for in in the gifts in our cities and anybody want to come to Ann Arbor I vote for Ann Arbor but <laughs> just thought I would give you some suggestions thank you Joni it's really sweet um, I would just add that I, th I think if we can teach our young people to break the taboo around the legitimizing myth. That will have so much healing power for people because right now, the myth upholds the leaders and the leaders are false leaders. When I read the book Black Elk Speaks and I learned more about some of the native and first people and indigenous peoples of the Americas, I was really in tears when I like read Sitting Bull's description of coming to with other chiefs to meet the political leaders of the United States. And when they came to the cities, they saw poverty for the first time. They never knew anything like homelessness. And they thought they were going to see um, a radically advanced civilization. So, so we have a false sense of leadership. Our leaders are the ones who hoard the most Whereas someone like Crazy Horse went last. He would only eat if everybody else ate. He would only be warm if everyone else was warm. And when I read that, I felt something awaken in me. That's true leadership. The spirit of leadership is sacrifice. There's no sacrifice among our, our leaders. So we have false leaders, but it's upheld by the legitimizing myth. They're the leaders because in the myth of meritocracy, whoever has the most is the most virtuous. Right, in, the, in the virtuizing of greed, but success is not proof of virtue. So it's the illusion of wanting more, you know? I mean, we have a, a, an agreement around like hoarding all of our stuff in paid containers that we're never gonna look at while children are starving. Like, it's just like, you know, kind of grotesque. Anyway, um, Sherry, did you have a question? Thank you so much, Todd. Last week when you spoke, the night after, I couldn't even sleep. There was so much. It was like, you know, so you've done it again. Uh, I love the, that you pointed out that tribalism basically is something that we as a community, as Americans keep getting involved in when we should all be together solving a problem. Like all people should be together solving every problem, not breaking down into tribalism and now i realize that the hierarchy knows that we're going to break into tribalism because it's so innate within us to break into tribalism uh like all people of all colors should have been marching about children being in cages and things like that but um i loved maureen's idea about i had never thought of it that there's no woman at the top of the spiritual hierarchy and there is something very powerful about Mary. And my experience is um, there's a building in Washington, D.C. called the Basilica. Mm -hmm. And because I'm curious about all things, I wandered in there doing one visit and went to the basement. And they had probably 200 Marys down there. And I am Southern Baptist. I had never been in a room with a Mary in my life. And I roamed through that thing for hours 
amazed at what I saw. I came out totally changed about my feelings about Mary at all. And I was amazed that the Mary from Africa looked like people from Africa, the Mary from Vietnam looked like the people from Vietnam, which was something else I had never thought of that Mary could be other than what I had seen always as being shown in the Catholic Church in America. So now when I go, I've been there like four times. Every time I go to DC, I never miss a chance to go there because it's so soothing, so calming, so wonderful. And I feel like a different person. And I, coming from a culture where a woman was never on top, the Southern Baptist, to go in there and come out feeling differently about a woman having power. And I still don't know very, very much about Mary at all. And, but I still feel differently so there is something about a woman wanting to have a woman as a part of the deity. And I don't know how that could happen, but I think it would make a big difference. And I really had never thought about that before. It would make a difference if it was a circle of power on top that included women versus the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. But I, I just, I just love the way that you you present things. I love the history behind it. Thank you. Cannot thank you enough. You have changed me forever. I still want to have dinner with you one day. <laughs> I love that. Um, uh, can I just say something real quick, Maureen? Yeah, that sure. I'm very suspicious uh, and concerned about the, the current division. I feel as though the propaganda is so strong that prevents people from having real dialogue. I mean, nuanced dialogue. And when you really just realize that 15 men own 90% of the media, 15 men. I mean, it's just right out of the playbook of WWE <laughs> to me. And, okay. and it, when people can really talk, I mean, I go around this country, I have for the past 10, 15 years with my band. And I sit down with anyone because they're coming to see me, to see us. So I feel a responsibility to be open to them. And I, if I sit down and I talk to somebody who's radically different from me, I find that they will listen to me. But in the news, in the media, it's only either or. There's no space for dialogue. You're either this way or that way, and you have to adopt all of the belief system or, or you become outcast. So everyone's trying to find a place to belong. Um, but I, I'm going to keep wading into into this space where everybody can come sit down and talk. So, yeah, thank you for highlighting that, too. Yeah, and that's a circle. You know, Speakeasy was, you know, inspired by 12-step where everybody sit knee to knee and eye to eye. It didn't matter how much money you had in your pocket or not had in pocket or what color or what religion or whatever. You know, it's like you have a seat at this table and what you have to say and share is worthy and you know sherry i loved hearing that story about the marys in the basement we got to get them out of the basement man you and me got to go there and rescue all those freaking marys and put them on what the a metaphor floor. marys in the basement yeah right they need to be on the first floor um for me making the divine mother a household name is my role here you know and even when i get sort of kickback from people places and things about that I feel like that is part of the healing. And so that that's what's happening here at Speakeasy. And um, 
I really do feel like that is part of the healing because it's not just to give women back the face of the Divine Mother, but to give it to our boys. To get to see your mother, your the Divine Feminine in a, in a holy conversation, in a holy definition, you're going to have a less likelihood to divide her into the, the whore or, the, or the, the virgin. You know, like we have to cut another path for us besides whore and virgin, if that's not too much to ask. <laughs> anyway, that's my, uh, that's my spiel. And we have Amber who's got something to share. Hi everyone. Um, I am obsessed with this topic. I think about it all the time. So thank you so much for hosting this and Todd for speaking on this. I'm interested to hear um, your thoughts, Todd, on um, this such a nuanced conversation. And I often think about um, when I lived out West for 10 years and I lived in West Hollywood and I saw children, male children, and what they were able to explore more freely versus coming back to the Midwest and seeing how things are still a little more rigid. And I think it's important just to let kids explore freely and not put labels and responsibilities on them, like letting them explore art. You know, women are able to explore, it, in certain ways it, it seems like women are able to explore their sexuality, their fashion, their, cultural expressions a little more freely than men can and I feel like they need that and and young male children and I feel like they need that ability in order to discover who they are and not feel these pressures to you know be certain type of men in society and I was just wondering your thoughts on that thanks Amber that's um yeah that's a really powerful reflection. I was born in California. And so my, my initial take on this, and I would need to give it more thought, but my, my initial response is that people come to California historically seeking adventure, maybe seeking opportunity also like in the, uh, the 49ers. But my parents, when I was born in California, it was because my parents were looking for a better life. My dad was in the military still and was stationed in San Francisco. He had just returned from Japan and Philippines and Hong Kong. Uh, so there, it was an expansive moment for them. And my parents love nature. So growing up a little bit there, being surrounded by mountains and ocean, I really think nature has this healing element also. So when you're talking about children growing up in California, likely they're going to see the ocean they're going to see big sky they're going to see mountains they're going to see redwoods it opens your heart i mean anytime i go to the redwoods or any of these sacred national parks i feel like an explosion of love and connectivity it, that's a little bit harder i think in illinois to to experience so i would say that's part of it in southern california my experience going to la is that there's a stereotype of people who all they care about is um, their looks for acting. But but actors are actually a very small, I mean, maybe Maureen could speak to this more, but represent a very small part of like the entertainment industry. I've met so many wonderful people that all they want to do is draw, draw pictures for the sets of, of children's shows. And they're beautiful people. They have, they have no self-interest. They're just 
they're just there because their creative heart is opening. So I, I think there's two elements to this, Amber, that that come to my mind. And one is creativity and, and the other one is nature. Creativity has so much healing power. Just, just looking at art stirs the activity of mirror neurons, which means cells in our brain may be firing that fired in the artist. Suddenly, you have more inspiration than you had before. When you create your own art, because you're seeking opportunity in LA or because you're responding to life, it's healing and it, it's, it stimulates dopamine, it stimulates other neurotransmitters that bring balance to the brain and it helps people make wise decisions because even just making a table once when I had a broken heart healed me because I had to make a thousand decisions to make the simple table with recycled pallets. And by the time I finished it, I felt like I knew what decisions I could make for my life. Creativity leads to resilience and nature leads to rebalance. Thank you. Great, great, great answer. Yeah, you know, uh, just on that little topic, the idea of, you know, gen the gender biases that we have around everything, you know, um, my husband's 52 years old and I took him for a pedicure. You would have thought he died and went to heaven. Like, I think he was going to marry the woman who did the pedicure. I was like, <laughs> like this man. And I was like, you've never had a pedicure before? And he's like, no. And I'm like, you can get your toenails painted like a cool, like black or whatever. And he's like, no, I couldn't do that. And I was like, why? Why? You know? And it, it, we really do kind of withhold the frivolous and the fun for the for girls in some ways and and it's just not okay so um i think there we have to be really woke and aware of where we're just saying no you can't do that for the sake of just living into the conformities that we've been handed get your toenails painted and ladies and there's one more thing with that there's a, a theory maureen and amber called the broaden and build theory by psychologist Barbara Fredrickson, which say, says the more fun you can have, which which relates to equality and opportunity, because like you said, you can you can have more fun if you are financially stable. But the more fun children have, that leads to skills. So when you go, when you have the opportunity to play in nature, you're going to climb trees and climb mountains. You will become more coordinated. Uh, you'll have more skill sets. When you have fun playing a game or playing sport, you learn how to lead, how to make decisions. Uh, when people love animals because they get the opportunity to be with animals, they develop skills in that way. And then when we become adults, we tend to have a much narrower view of what is fun. People think fun is just going to a party or going to a restaurant or to a bar. And for some reason, we get disconnected from our childhood wonder and imagination, even though as we grow and and become a little bit more stable, maybe economically on our own, there actually is more opportunity for us to have fun. But we've been so culturally conditioned based on being a man or a woman and, and based on many other elements of culture with we're stereotyped into and boxed into what we what we can do. And by removing some of those barriers and some of those taboos, I think people can can continue to grow psychologically and mature in compassion, too by just having all those kinds of fun. We have made a lot of progress in the last like 10 years. You know what I mean? Like we have, we, we have gone through a lot of changes and shifts and a lot of things that have 
been um, confirmed and confining us have started to be questioned and poked at and that which is not true can, you know, fades and falls. So we have made some good progress. We're just still in it. And um, that's why we get to have another conversation with you next week <laughs> when we solve it all for good. <laughs> um, it's been so great chatting with you. And um, did anybody else have anything that they wanted to share before we um, close out? Yes, I just wanted to add, um, when we talk about creativity and funness with children and men and male children to also um, it is a nuanced conversation, so I can't help but think of race, obviously. Um, black child, black, black male children are often stereotyped a lot younger, and so are girls. But male especially, black boys need to be able to play as well. So we also have to check ourselves when we think of our biases, when we're looking at black boys playing and not think of them immediately as threats which is something that happens in this country a lot. And I think that that's something that always has to be in our minds when we have this type of conversation. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And and, that, and that's, yeah, exactly what I mean by fun and opportunity uh, have to intersect. Not everybody has the opportunity to have the same kind of fun, whether, yeah, whether it's for different hegemonic reasons. Uh, related to race, related to sex, and related to uh, socioeconomic strata as well, and, and many other factors. So that that's super important. And if people don't have the equal opportunity to that, they don't have equal opportunity to develop. I just uh, wanted to say thank you. I'm just so appreciating the wisdom and the the peaceful, calm uh, equanimity in which you're sharing this wisdom. And I just feel filled with incredible gratitude. And although I know um, we seem to have the solution as Maureen was sharing it, I look forward to next week and I look forward to continuing this conversation and to... Um, usher in the solutions that are here for us. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you, Beth Gordon. Appreciate that so much, Beth. You know, these conversations are important and obviously, you know, uh, we feel fed by them. And why wouldn't you want to break this bread and share it with more people? So um, come back next week and also bring your friends. Thanks for joining in with us today and welcome to Virtual Speakeasy. I'm Maureen Muldoon, the spiritual director, and I am also a celebrant of the Divine Mother. And I just am grateful that Speakeasy is a place where we can continue to have these tough and tender topics and speak about them. Uh, Todd is our guest for this uh, final episode, but of course it won't be the last time we see him. Uh, he's going to give the talk, and the, the talk is a, um, it's a conversation starter. And I think the conversation for me is the most important part of our time together because we ask you at Speakeasy to help find your voice and your truth and share your thoughts. And this is where that can happen, where we share our inspirations and our awarenesses. And 
we get to fumble towards our truth and you don't have to be you know professional or polished to have something really important to share you can stumble your way all the way there and most of the time when i see people you know choke something out that needs to be said it's so important and it's so beautiful and so i hope you give yourself the opportunity to do that when we get to the conversation so i'll just take a moment to pray us in and then we will um have todd come up and share the final episode of seahorse series so if you join me just go ahead and take a moment take a breath to just be right here and right now allowing yourself to anchor into this most beautiful moment and noticing your breath and the sweetness of your breath and the generous nature of your breath of being able to take in as much as you like go ahead and allow yourself to take a deeper breath than you have yet taken today And on the exhale, let yourself settle into this moment, this conversation, this community. I give thanks for all of the inspirations and awarenesses that Todd brings to the table. I give thanks for the ways that it opens up new awarenesses and ideas in our own thinking, that we get to carry these ideas and awarenesses back into our own families and communities and conversations and relationships. And I just know and claim that we will be amazed before we're even halfway through with this time. I hand this time over to the Holy Spirit, divine love, who knows that all is well. So I give thanks for this and so much, so much more. And I let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much, Todd, for being here. Please give a warm welcome to Todd Fink. Thank you so much. So great to be with you all on Father's Day. I didn't realize back when we planned this series that it would culminate uh, the final session on Father's Day. I think that's that's wonderful synchronicity. I want to take a moment to thank my father and wish him a happy Father's Day because it's really special to do this on Father's Day and I wouldn't be able to talk about this subject or have the confidence or courage to do this kind of work if it, if it wasn't... Um, for his influence in my life and for my time with him. Just a few thoughts about my dad. He was in the military when I was born. I was born in Oakland, California, and he was often traveling overseas to Asia, to the Philippines, to Japan, to Hong Kong. He had the opportunity to study martial arts in Hong Kong and other places. And by the time he came back, he was essentially um, masterful at karate and, and other techniques. He was literally the best nunchuck master I ever, I ever witnessed on TV, including Bruce Lee. And it's just an example of the range of his uh, qualities as a man. He worked in engineering and and facilities management throughout his life and works for a hospital now in Southern California. But at one point in in my high school days, my dad took time off of his normal work to build a house by himself and then flip that house. And that allowed him to write and publish a book of poetry. Additionally, he played lots of instruments, taught me how to play the guitar when I was very little. And because of all those qualities in him, 
and that range of expression, I felt free to be myself. And as I got to college and, and made other friends and became close with people who were really skilled in the arts, I found that they didn't necessarily have that relationship with their own fathers and felt limited and boxed in to what they could do in terms of study and what they could do in terms of career. And I didn't have that and I didn't realize what a gift it was until I became an adult. I also wanted to note that my dad, while not having a particular religious affiliation, really inspired me into spirituality. I think because of his time in Asia, he was exposed to other philosophical systems. And what I took away from him was curiosity, like a holy curiosity. I, Although he wasn't religious and I, my mother's side was, was pretty Catholic, so we did often go to church and I went to a Catholic school. But my dad was pretty open-minded about spiritual things. But one time when I was a kid, I did see my dad reading the Bible and he was reading it thoroughly, page by page from beginning to end. And even people who are very deep into, um, into Christianity, I'll ask him sometimes about some part of the Bible and they haven't read that or they're not familiar with that. And my dad, who's not a Christian, has thoroughly read the Bible multiple times, I believe, and contemplated. And, and that, I think, is, the, is part of the spiritual magic that I took, that, that anyone can believe or say anything, but who's really willing to study, to seek, to try to find the truth. And that, that is what spirituality ultimately is about, I think, is the... The adventure, the, the seeking adventure, and he continues to do so. And because of that, we're able to have deep conversations. I'm able to express myself. I'm able to ask him questions about the nature of reality, what I, what I sometimes think could be possible about consciousness and love and connection and things like that. So thanks to my father and happy Father's Day to everybody, all, all the fathers here. And, and also the other Men in my family have also been a, a loving, guiding presence in my life. My mom and dad have lots of brothers and sisters. My mom has had a family of nine. My dad had a family of uh, maybe 13 or more. I, I can't, I lose count. But they were all very supportive of me as an artist, as a musician, would tell me that how much they loved me and believed in me. And... Um, one of my uncles on my dad's side, before right before he passed away, he wanted me and my brother near him as much as possible up until the end. And the men in my life would often reach out to me and my brother and, and sometimes call us um, their other sons. And I, I felt completely protected and guided and inspired by um, all the men in my life. So I, I, I now know that it's pretty special and I'm really grateful for that. And in this final session, we're, we're exploring the emotional range and maturity um, in, in manhood and masculinity. I wanted to read another poem from my upcoming book. This one is about emotional maturity. It's called The Opposite of Experiential Avoidance. If I could make peace with myself, 
it would not involve eliminating emotion. It would involve allowing emotion. That's what people sense as odd calmness, non-resistance. So many emotional reactions are not expressions of feeling, but rejections of feeling. Attempts to deny its arrival or demand immediate departure. To remain open and curious in the rhythm of each beat of energy is to behold its already dispersing beauty and absorb the wisdom of every fading color and rarity. As I said before, emotions are like weather. Our thoughts are like the clouds. They're just, they're moving. But at a glance, you may say it's gloomy out or the sky is gray, but the sky is not gray. The clouds are gray and the clouds are not static. They're dynamic, they're moving. And the weather is like our mood, but the weather is not permanent. The weather is changing, constantly changing. Climate is like our personality. We know that generally speaking, it's going to be warm or hot this time of year in this part of the country, but that doesn't guarantee it will be. So we sometimes define people by the past, by personality, as we do with climate. But the sky is like consciousness. Another name for you is awareness. And all these experiences are arising in awareness. And with this understanding, a man or any person can start to become in tune with their inner weather, their inner experience. To me, emotional maturity involves three things that we'll talk about today. It involves having one, a sense of response versus reaction. And this is where sometimes there is some danger or pitfalls stereotypically for men in which emotions they can express and which ones they um, get conditioned to be ashamed of. So for example, I said this before, but anger is a more uh, masculine emotion because of its strength and power or loudness, the intensity of the energy. Stereotypically, that becomes an emotion that society becomes familiar with in men. And when men are expressing anger, or I should say reacting with anger, it can appear as the man is strong and trying to get control over the situation. Whereas society uh, stereotypically may punish women for feeling that emotion or acknowledging that emotion could be labeled as crazy. Whereas sadness seen as a weaker emotion. And if women cry, it's it's normalized. But if a man cries, it's showing too much weakness, stereotypically. There's been studies done that uh, in workplaces where men and women are observed by researchers and the the kind of interactions that take place are documented. And they'll find that when men and women ask the same questions to the group, it doesn't ultimately get perceived the same way. The women will be more likely to be perceived as aggressive or oppositional or complicated. And so there's a lot to heal here in society. But ultimately, to me, all emotions have their functions and emotions are not good or bad. What we need to be teaching children and teaching people in general 
is not how to feel better, but how to get better at feeling. And mindfulness will help with this. Emotions involve neuro neurologically our frontal cortex. And anytime that area is active through awareness, it actually helps to transmute feelings. All of our feelings are programmed by evolution, our emotions, to help us with our relationship to the environment and to keep us safe. That's why we feel it between our head and our base, because that's where our vital organs are. And that's where all the signals are going to shoot out to the rest of our body to move us in a particular way. Think of emotion as E plus motion, the energy for motion. In French, where we get the word emotion, émouvoir, meant to move. So the feeling is trying to move you towards or away from something in the environment. And if we understand this, we can listen to our feelings and respond instead of react. The, the doctor um, uh, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, Dr. Viktor Frankl said, the last human freedom is to choose one's response. And remember in that book, he's describing uh, as a prisoner in the Holocaust, how everything was stripped away from him. They took his family, his fa all his family died in the gas chambers. They took his clothes, they took his possessions, they took his wedding ring. Then they shaved his head and, and his body. And he realized he had literally nothing left. He was only skin and bones but they couldn't strip away his freedom to choose his attitude. And that's where his power was. And that's how he survived after two years in, in the prison. And then he lived for another 50 and he wrote about it and he began to thrive again, simply through the power of responding wisely, even in the most severe circumstances. Studies have shown that when a person can name their feeling, simply say to themselves, this is anger, this is sadness, this is fear. That self-awareness reduces activity in the amygdala, which is an almond-shaped structure deep inside our brain that regulates our fight-flight instinct and that kind of emotional intensity. Just by naming an emotion, a subject has 50% less activity in that part of the brain, which translates to emotional maturity, self-control, balance. The, the understanding here is that our emotions are directing our senses outward to protect us. If I could look inward, that must mean I'm safe enough to do so. And it's a luxury. So anytime we, we practice introspection, self-awareness, we spontaneously start to manage our emotions. That's why um, this kind of insight is so valuable to people. And this also involves breathing. Breathing is the simplest, surest, most powerful signal that we can use to communicate with our biology. I can say I'm fine all I want, but it may not change anything in, in my emotional shifts. But if I breathe deeply, it sends a chemical signal to my brain and to my body that I can settle into this feeling, that I can feel that without all of the impulse to reject it. And I, I want to stress that like in the, in the poem, that 
urge may be part of the emotion, but actually throwing something is not emotion. That's behavior. And if I'm aware of it and I can breathe through it, I can start to feel it. We want to throw something. We want to break something. We want to shout. We want to isolate, withdraw, self-harm, drink, binge eat, binge TV, to reject our feelings. That's what people do not understand about the emotional experience, that all those reactions are not the feeling. They're rejections of feeling. Real feeling, really tuning in with ourselves is allowing, allowing the wave of energy to proceed. That's what acceptance means. It comes from Latin, ad capere, which meant to receive. People think of acceptance all the time as getting rid of or letting go or moving on. They forget that an acceptance speech is given when you receive the award. Similarly, acceptance with emotions is allowing the feeling to be there. When you no longer reject your experience, you're no longer avoiding experience. That's the opposite of experiential avoidance. Then we can have the maturity to talk about it, to share it, to communicate it, to express it, to create with it, to channel it. The second part of emotional maturity is an internal locus of control. There was a longitudinal study in Hawaii that followed 700 children from birth through their 30th birthday. And the researchers recorded all the data that they could get from these subjects over three decades, including their health records, their academic records, surveys, questionnaires, um, finances, and their family life growing up and as adults. And they found about a third of these children had some kind of traumatic experience or adverse event in their life. And then they honed in on this subset of subjects and found that out of this one third, there's nearly 200, these nearly 200 people, most of them struggled as adults, struggled emotionally, might have had clinical depression, might have had um, difficulty managing anxiety or having anxiety disorders. They had trouble in their family life, trouble um, having healthy relationships, trouble with work and finances. But out of that group, a small percentage did not struggle, actually were able to thrive and succeed in life, in family, in relationships, with work, with meaning, with spirituality. And as they poured through all of the data to try to find what was unique about those who also went through a traumatic experience, but were able to find well-being as adults, looking back on the questionnaires, they found the difference was an internal locus of control, a sense of personal accountability, which I think can also fit into our traditional understanding of masculinity, that I can find a way to overcome, that I can find a way to be optimistic, that I have the inner resources, not necessarily to fix everything, but I have the inner resources to make my life meaningful, even with pain, even with setbacks, that I can find spiritual meaning like Viktor Frankl. If Viktor Frankl could do it in the Holocaust, then surely we can find a way to make our lives meaningful and beautiful. We can bloom wherever we're planted. Even like Tupac said, even if the flower is breaking through the cracks of concrete, 
And if it does, if it achieves it and blooms, then it, it what a, what an example of resilience. And, and it's still adding beauty to that space. So our responsibility is to bloom wherever we are, like the lotus flower and the lotus leaf in the muddy, murky, dirty pond. So an internal locus of control is about a sense of pers personal responsibility to make our lives bloom, to make our lives meaningful, and to add beauty wherever we are, to not constantly be seeking a good place, but know that we have to do the work to make this place better for ourselves and for others. And then the third part of emotional maturity that I'll discuss briefly today is um, support and connection. And this is where we get into some challenges again, uh, for some men stereotypically, like the, the joke of, of a man not being willing to ask for directions. But this is sometimes conditioned into us to not be able to show that side of ourselves: confusion, doubt, insecurity, that those are difficult sides of emotion for a man to feel and to be able to talk about, to express. But through support and connection, people can open up because you realize you're not alone. Those who have any experience in 12-step programs for recovering from chemical dependency or alcoholism or addiction, you may see that there's a transformation on this front the support and connection really opens up people. And, and people who struggle with addiction usually have something traumatic. More than 70% of patients with addiction and programs report an adverse or traumatic event in childhood. There's a reason to use in those cases to numb, to, to push away, to suppress feeling. And in the support groups, people realize they're not alone in feeling this. And it's totally safe in that space, in that sacred circle to share, to open up. And as they witness, when they step into that space, as they witness people being vulnerable and succeeding with that vulnerability, gradually they develop the courage to be vulnerable themselves. And by doing so, they overcome that need to hide from themselves and that is how we heal our shadow side, whoever we are. It's not just for men. And to me, that's sort of like when you enter into a dark room and you can't see anything. But if you have the courage to stay with it in the darkness, your eyes adjust and eventually the rod cells can manage the little bit of light that's in there. So leaning in i think to vulnerability and emotional maturity is like when your eyes adjust and once again you can see what's really going on what's what's really there there's a story in the life of the buddha about a woman who came to him after her son died and she asked if he could perform a miracle and bring him back to life she knew he was some kind of spiritual master and believed he could do that just like you hear in stories of Jesus raising the dead. And the Buddha said, I, can, I may be able to help, but I need some special mustard seeds. Can you? It can't be your own. It has to be from a neighbor. But it has to be from a neighbor in your village who's not grieving some loss like you are because it, it will uh, change the energy of the seed. So that's her mission 
to go find some mustard seed from one of her neighbors in the village and bring it back to the Buddha to perform some special ceremony that she believes is going to bring her son back to life. When she goes to the first house, she asks the man there if he could spare some mustard seeds. She explains that she needs it for a special ceremony with the Buddha. And he brings some and she's about to leave, but then she remembers that they cannot be grieving any loss in that house. And, and she asks, and because she shared her story, the man felt safe enough to be vulnerable and talk about his feelings uh, for his son who is missing. He wasn't sure if his son was dead, but he said that he went on a, on a trip to trade some goods and he was expected back months ago. So they have begun to assume the worst and they don't, he doesn't believe he'll see his son again. So he, he was feeling devastated and heartbroken. And ultimately the, the woman consoles him and he consoles her, but, but she can't accept the mustard seed because it doesn't meet the criteria. And like this, she goes from home to home and basically shares her story and the, the families share their stories. And when she cannot get any mustard seeds because everybody has lost, has lost something they love, or someone they love, she comes back to the Buddha, no longer needing her son to be raised from the dead because she has what she needs to accept the reality of life, and that is support and connection. Helen Keller said, it's better to walk in the dark with a friend than alone in the light. Meaning once you realize our connection, the depth of connection through the the trials that we all go through, the ups and downs that are part of the human condition. There's a lot of power in that. And the last thing I want to share uh, before we open it up for conversation is that in the, the fifth overlapping structure that I highlighted from sociologist Sylvia Walby that defines or explains the patriarchy and the dominating unhealthy energy that can happen with masculinity run amok the fifth one was sexuality and i didn't take enough time to explain that last week but i thought it it fits in here with emotional maturity it's that women's sexuality tends to be treated negatively and this is also an opportunity for me to say not just women's but any sexuality that's not male heterosexual way of relating so how how does that play out like in derogatory words the the words for female anatomy become swear words become misogynistic terms that men have used to humiliate other men and without even thought about how it how it affects women and so there's words for women expressing their sexuality in the same way a man would but it's but it's derogatory for the for the woman and there's no counterpart for men expressing themselves sexually in the same way so i think this is a fundamental piece to healing in society to maturing is to be able to break down taboos around sexuality so that it there's not all of, all this negativity and all this shame, false shame that is projected onto anyone and anything that doesn't fit into this rigid 
box. And that requires men to be mature enough to, to set that boundary for themselves, to teach their children, to educate other people and to stand up and point it out when, when other people are doing it or to set the boundary with people in their life. Like I, I can't go there in that conversation. I don't, I don't think it's helpful or productive. I think it's hurtful. And we have a lot of work to do on that front. So this has been a joy for me to be able to enter this space with you and initiate these conversations. I was nervous at first, but um, you made everything very special and all of your questions and reflections gave me plenty to think further about. And so I'm excited to continue this work with Maureen in in this space or other spaces. And we hope to have a seahorse party later this summer. And we'll tell you more about that soon. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yay. Multi-talented Renaissance man in the house. <laughs> the way we like them. We'll kick off the conversation and I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to share. So my name's Will. I'm Maureen's husband. And um uh Todd, just to just to get the conversation started, uh listening to you um made made me think of a, a, a situation that I had just this past week. Um uh, and, and I guess I would like to preface this with like, I, I sort of fancy myself a, a, a sensitive guy, not a particularly stereotypical guy. Occasionally I'm around, you know, the, these macho dudes that have great stories about, or I don't know if they're great, but stories about like drinking and fighting and beating people up. And I, I just never had anything to add to that. And, and I, I honestly feel sort of like a loser in some, some of those situations, but um, Cause really I like, I have nothing. Um, but, but I do have like some of those stereotypical male tendencies. And, and this, this week I'm up here on the Island and I commute to and from work on my, my dad's old 1960 Schwinn bike. And, um, I was riding home a few days ago and I Jane fell off my bike. I was still four miles from home and I was, I had no tools with me. And I, I was really sort of in a predicament that I was, gonna have to maybe carry this bike home and a car stops and right away I was like oh brother someone's gonna try to help me and um <laughs> and it was actually my boss and and she said do you need help and I my first answer was like no no I'm fine even though I was kind of screwed and then she said oh I got room I could I could give you a ride home and I said you know what that would be great and I put my bike in the back of her minivan and she gave me a ride home um but my first reaction was to reject kindness. To re and, and I was, I don't know why. It made me feel, I don't know, vulnerable or like I'm not self-sufficient enough and, and I, I should, I can handle it even though I couldn't handle it. I was totally boned, you know? <laughs> um, but I did at least, uh, you know, have enough wherewithal to, to accept her help and it, uh, it, you know, the problem was solved. But when, when you said that we as a species or, or a gender have, have a, a long way to go, I, I think that's true. I mean, hopefully we're evolving, but um, I, I've certainly got um, plenty of stories like that where I, it doesn't feel okay as a man to, to have any problems, to be in a situation that I can't handle myself. Um, and that's just the, you know, a very immediate one that came to mind when I was listening to you. Wow. That's, 
Thanks for sharing that. Well, that, that's really meaningful. And um, but I look up to you and the stories of uh, of your place up there, and I think that's that's really cool. So I don't, you know, I, I felt the same things, and I don't think we need a whole bunch of fight stories to be <laughs> to be able to to Good. satisfy. That there's something inside many of us that that wants some some that wants to share stories that wants to have meaningful adventure you know and I, and I think you know emotional maturity is an adventure I think our spirituality is our is an adventure vulnerability is an adventure and you make a great point in what you shared and that when we're closed off to support and that's why I wanted to highlight that in the emotional maturity it locks us into it, it defines us with whatever whatever level or experience we're at with our skill set and everything and then we have to hide that or be ashamed of that and we don't get to grow i actually regret not being more open to to my dad to i would i would know more things but by not saying you know dad i really need to figure out how to do this you know like i will pay attention and and learn it that like limited me in different ways and it, and it did throughout my life until I could be able to own what's true and be able to be vulnerable now I'm, I'm even doing that with my brother who has so many more skills than me I'll say I'll, I'll say I don't know how to do this thing um, I won't pretend like I do and I'll see that a, a lot of times people will pretend like they know something they don't just to protect some some emotional aspect of themselves and then they don't actually get to grow and we're missing out on all these opportunities to tap into the collective wisdom and so i'm trying to practice that but but there is some upfront discomfort i think and so one of the ways that i'm working on just being able to break through is i'm practicing taking cold baths and cold showers and doing cryotherapy just because our bodies are always saying, ah, I don't want to be uncomfortable in that way. And so it gives me like a physical metaphor for wading into discomfort. And my experience with cryotherapy or cold baths or cold plunges is that you just feel way more alive when it's all over. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of leaning in. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's inspiring for me. Thanks for that. You'll have to come up, Todd. You can cryo bath all you want in Lake Superior. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. It's old. Uh, Mario wanted to share. Hello, I'm Mario. And not only am I an addict and agree with the trauma, 70% trauma, I've learned that in my meetings um, from people, opening up to people about my own stuff and, and them opening up to me pain shared is pain lessened, right? Um, that's what they say. Um, also, I was a teacher and there's that age group when kids are young and they're saying, are you a girl or a boy? And it's very binary. And some of my kindergartners thought I was a, they would say, oh, I thought you were a boy. And, you know, I was like, well, I'm not a girl either when they would say that <laughs> because I'm an adult, right? So they even needed to identify that, hey, I'm not your friend. I'm not um, young. I'm a, I'm an adult so and a teacher. And it was really interesting that it, when I would tell them I'm a female and I like men's clothes, even at the high school level, they were questioning my gender. They said, you know, why do you wear men's clothes? And I was like, 
because I I'm more comfortable in them, you know. And that was uh, a couple years ago that I identified as female. Now I'm kind of trans curious and the the masculinity, I think drag kinging like really opened up the masculinity in me. Um, and I'm looking forward to the masculinity party and the seahorse party and um, what I can learn from male role models like Todd. Thanks, Mario. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, I, I I agree that it's just important to have mentorship, to have role models, basically for for encouraging and supporting people in being all that they can be, being being true to themselves, being free to express themselves. And although masculinity and femininity is, is uh, seems binary, it's it's more like a, a continuum of unlimited expression. And as I was saying, like in the first series or the first session, that moment to moment, there's a dance. The, the problems in society come from all the labeling and all the defining that we think we need um, to, to be able to feel all right, that I need to know exactly what you are. And it's not it's not just limited to gender. It's it's everything. You know, it's, people want to have a definition in their relationships. They want to have a definition with their work. But. But I think it just it holds us all back from being all that we can be in the moment. I have every right, you know, to to be to be a new a new person tomorrow, to not have to carry everything from the past and let that walk in the door before before I do. And when we do that to ourselves and to each other, we're just missing out on all of the human potential. I think. So thank you for sharing. And I also look forward to connecting and growing together in our seahorse party. Thank you. I um, I would like to share, I guess, about, um, you know, thinking about what Mario just shared and uh, the whole conversation of, of uh, sacred masculine and how we begin to help each other along the way and all of the ways that things are being broken down and redefined and having gone through that with our son ryan um he he did kind of wade into um his identity and uh and eventually came out as pansexual transgender and uh i do believe that there's a spectrum that we're all on the spectrum of, of gender and that sometimes I want to feel more masculine and sometimes I feel more feminine. Most of the time I identify as uber female because I really love living on that end of the spectrum. Um, but, and all of that is okay. Um, but I guess the thing that I, that, that, that brought up for me was just um, when, when you just said like, I get to be whoever I want to be tomorrow. Like don't, brand me don't shove me under an identity i'm going to change my mind and um and i'm and i'm more than masculine and feminine i'm fluid you know we're all so fluid and we have more permission to be fluid we give it to ourselves in regards to relationships where once it was till death do you part and then we 
all figured out how to divorce each other and that was wonderful <laughs> because it wasn't meant to be till the end you know we got to be more fluid and find ourselves again in a new relationship and there was the time when we had the job and you stuck to the job until you died that was your second family and then we got to have third um, or second careers and third careers and so it's not surprising that we should find this fluidity in regards to our gender as well and our kids showing us in this next generation really showing us and allowing us to see the fluidity and um, I, I and it's not always easy it's not always easy to be fluid and uh, there's a dance that goes along with it so I loved what you said about being better at feeling not feeling better, but being at, better at feeling. And I love the tools that you gave us to do that. I think that there's something also about being better at letting somebody else feel. You know, I feel like sometimes I'll jump in and try and change your mind from feeling. Like don't, especially, especially extreme emotions like sadness or confusion, like I wanna fix it. And so I wonder if you had any thoughts about like, how can you stay in your lane when it comes to other people and support each other and having their feelings? I mean, that's why I love 12 Step is everybody sits in their chair and just gets to say what's true for them. But um, anyway, I'll pass it back to you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Beautiful question. And there's often for some people a need to fix. We sometimes even think uh, stereotypically as men too, that validating is me hearing what you're saying and then saying well here's how you can fix it but we do this on very subtle levels with lots of people and everyone uh can can fall into this pattern where you feel a sense of urgency to resolve the crying to resolve the emotional episode but oftentimes there's nothing really that can be said sometimes like grief can't be rushed for instance but we can offer each, offer our presence to other people because like, again, um, that third point with emotional maturity is support and connection. And we can find the language around offering our presence so that person feels safe in our energy. Think of in relationships, especially when you really love someone, you don't try to dominate them. You don't try to control them. Your very being becomes a space for them to grow in, to create in, to change through freely. And when they feel that that space is available to them, that you are a safe space, I think that that's how we do it for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I rem I just made me think of like when my when we were little. This is really weird, but when we were little, my dad would sometimes be you know, would, um, would punish us physically. And when one kid got punished, everyone would cry. <laughs> you know, everybody would cry. And my dad say, what are you crying about? And we're like, we don't like that you're hitting her. You know what I mean? And, um, and so it's like, I, I think that's, I think that's the thing. We're probably, when we see somebody cry, we want to cry and we want to fight against our own emotions instead of saying like this, I'll, I'll share this cry with you. I mean, how mm -hmm. weird and intimate would that be? But that's what children do. You know, yeah. you just be like little children. And, and instead, we're like, I don't want to feel this. So stop crying or I'll give you something real to cry about. Like, those are some of the messaging that we get around our emotions. And it's like, what the hell does that mean? So it's just interesting to undo 
all of this insanity yeah. around emotion. We're often so- taught to suppress it. Yeah. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't work. It gets bottled up and it, it haunts us later in, in really unhealthy ways. Mm-hmm. But I, again, I want to remind people that, that rejecting our emotions in our behavior is not feeling, is not allowing the emotion. By shouting at someone and saying, you know, and blaming them for my feelings is sort of shifting all the responsibility for my feeling for allowing this feeling to come through to them. Like you made me mad and that's why I'm shouting at you. Now you fix me. And and it's really it's really giving away power unnecessarily. When we meditate, when we go take a walk and we allow ourselves to feel in that safe space and then we breathe and then we come out with understanding and self-acceptance, then we know I actually don't need this person to change right now or to understand me before I could do self-care. And there's a real power in that. Then I can go work on solving my problem and the social problems with the energy of compassion instead of the energy of energy of destructive anger or or some other uh, harmful rejection of ourselves and and with the demand and with the dominating uh, force. Compassion is a much more powerful energy in the end because it's sustainable. Like when you love somebody and they're sick, you you can stay up all night. You can you can do what you need to do. But when you're overreacting with with anger, it drains your battery right away. So I think of compassion as the renewable energy that we want to tap into. Yeah, and it's interesting because here's the balance, right? It's like. We're trying to teach men to say like, yes, I need help. And we're also trying to teach ourselves like, if you need help, go take a walk by yourself. You know what I mean? So there's, there's like both of those things are true and finding the balance between when it's, I mean, I think, I think really that, that there is a way of communicating that could be further assisted in allowing the masculine in me to say, I need help sometimes, and I'm going to be okay saying that. And, uh, and that it doesn't make me weak, it makes me wise. And that I'm not wrong, I'm just learning. And learning is never a, a bad thing. But like to really encourage ourselves and our sons to learn how to use those words of, I could use some help here. I don't have it all together. And I'm, and I, yeah, I could w- take a walk and find it on my own, but that doesn't bring me closer to you. I don't know. What do you think about that, Todd? Because I know that sometimes we have an experience of the, the lone wolf. And so we have a lot of men walking into the forest by themselves. Well, I, I just recently heard um, part of an interview with Chuck Palahniuk. When they're talking about Fight Club, Chuck said something interesting about how a man has his father, if he's lucky, has a, has a biological father, if he's fortunate enough to have a relationship, but also has to seek out a second father in in a traditional Joseph Campbell sort of way in this arc of the seeker or the, the hero's journey. And um, it's a metaphor, I think, for opening ourselves up 
to all of the range of this masculine and, ener- and, and feminine energy. Like this actually happened for me. I sought out a spiritual father and I had a vision in my mind that that my spiritual guide would also be like a father, meaning he would be strict with me. He, w- he wouldn't just let like I was open to him. I, I said, you know, you can point out my my mistakes and I'm not going to run away because you made me uncomfortable. And I, and I think that we could all do that. We could all seek out wisdom and knowledge. But to do that, you have to tap into some other energies. Like I spent six months not talking. I went to India and I pretty much was silent that whole time. And I didn't worry about what that meant about my identity. Am I a quiet person now? Am I a person that's that's only uh, submissive? But I needed to learn and I needed to take all the time I needed to learn. And I didn't have to worry about that. Which, which taps or connects to the other thing we were talking about and all the identity. Um, if, and for example, I've eaten plant-based for almost 20 years now, but I never call myself vegan or even plant-based because I want to be able to be free to make my own choice in the next meal. And so it's just all about not feeling limited by and defined by our experiences. Thank you. I love that. I love that idea of a second father and even for women, a second mother, you know, finding, and again, it harkens from the 12 step program where you have a sponsor, you know, and, um, and I have a friend, Al, Al Gator, Al Chase, you know him. And, uh, he was telling me, and he's, I don't know, maybe 75 and he was running and he found this man who was like, 85 who was doing like um who was running and they're now going to be in like they're attempting to be in the adult adult olympics or something like that geriatric olympics i don't know what it is but he's a really he and he told me about this man and how he he befriended him and how he's become his like sponsor and he knows a lot about the things that al wants to learn about and so like this is doesn't this isn't just segregated to the youth like no matter what age you are, everybody needs a mom and dad. And you don't have to, you know, just say, oh, my, my time has come and passed. Like we, we still get the opportunity to find those figures. I mean, when I was in California, I had friends of all ages and I had a specific friend, Jeannie Van Dam, who was like a second mom to me. I've had lots of second moms actually. And uh, I've never denied myself the privilege of that. It's a really beautiful relationship to offer yourself and to be that for someone else, a second daughter. And I'm sure I've been a second mom for some people and I, I, I do welcome that. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And, and that's exactly what I'm talking about for anyone, not, not, not just uh, for men. But as you try to gain mastery over whatever you're trying to learn, like you, you go to somebody to learn about gardening. You go to, to somebody to learn about music. Like in my case, you go to somebody um, to, to develop yourself in some kind of skill or some kind of career or some kind of work. And as you're mastering the gardening, you're also mastering yourself. And if you don't approach it like that, you're just missing an opportunity to get the all-round development. As you weed the garden, you're also with your thoughts and you're weeding out what doesn't serve you as you're trying to make the space more beautiful or the work more beautiful you're learning how to manage yourself 
you're learning about your your uh, sensitivities and you're learning about your your interest and curiosities and your pain and so on and you're learning how to transmute it into creativity and and it's true for anything i mean anyone i've ever talked to no matter what kind of work they do or what they're interested in i find it's a it's a portal to the whole if if they approach it with the attitude that what i'm doing is a service to myself and others no matter no matter what it is that's beautiful what you got clive well there's something that uh, tom was saying earlier about um not being you know you're saying about the cold uh, swims and things about how it uh, opens you up um, and i found recently i work in a company which is a tree surgery or like forestry company and there's lots of magical things going on. Very orientated environment, a lot of big machines and things. And and I'm sort of fairly new to it. And um, I, there's a lot of um, anach- um, anachronisms, acronyms, acronyms. You know, like uh, people just throw in these kind of you know, MPS3 or something, and you're supposed to know what it is. And as I'm new, and I don't know a lot of these, but I'm a supervisor, and they kind of think I do. And so I have to turn around and say, I can either say, "Mm, yes, of course, or I can turn around and say, sorry, I don't know what that is, can you help me? And um, I've been increasingly uh, doing that, saying, turn around and say, sorry, I just don't know what you mean, can you explain that to me? And what it has found it has done is gone from the point of being vulnerable and maybe feeling I'm a bit small at the first moment to becoming suddenly when they turn around and say, oh, okay, I can help you there. The whole relationship in that moment changes and we can meet on a thing. It kind of makes them less um, maybe reserved or um, protect, self-protective my presence thinking that I'm the one above them and they're working for me to the thing where it equalizes us and we become a lot more we suddenly develop a relationship and we become more uh, closer more harmonious which actually ends up with a much more um, productive relationship and a safer one because they then trust me they know that I'm not kind of hiding from them that they you know we're on a similar level we can work together that our job titles or job positions is not something get in the way and that I'm approachable and that I want to approach them and I want to be deep and I find it suddenly takes out the whole thing of any kind of masculinity or anything you just become people who are trying to get through a dangerous situation in a safe way and a harmonious way so I think that I'm doing the the, the cold water swimming in the seas and the lakes is really I think been I hadn't thought about it, but I think it is uh, really contributing to that. So I think that's a very uh, useful point that kind of showed me that. Thank you. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I've looked at research that shows that leaders in the workplace that have the trait of humility have stronger teams, their teams stay together longer. Uh, the teams are more effective, the communication, there's all these metrics that reveal that the communication is healthier. Um, and that's and that's really what it's all about, that, that vulnerability. And it creates 
the harmonious energy that you're talking about. That, that's a paradox of humility, though, especially in conventional masculinity, because it could be seen as something other than than strength and assertiveness, the, the willingness to be uncomfortable with not knowing something, even though you're in a leadership role. But it allows for other people to share their gifts. And I think a leader is one also that can bring out the best in everybody and let people feel inspired to 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 share their gifts and to use their skills and to use their knowledge and not just wait for instruction or just wait for directions. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Thank you. And, and I'm glad you appreciated the cold water part too. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty special. Thank you. Clyde. And great to see both of you. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say that. <laughs> so nice to see them. They've got like a beauty filter on. They're so gorgeous. It's just pretty looking at the box that they live in. <laughs> so hopefully they'll hey. come over and visit us. Hey, I'll be really quick if that's okay. Sure, sure. Uh, in, the be- in the beginning of the series, I think in the first series, um, Todd, you spoke of how the seahorse trusts the current. It's not a very good swimmer, but it trusts the current. And um, that has um, resonated with me throughout the series. And it sounded like a, a journey of freedom and a journey of trust that we can choose or and, and practice love and courage. Um, that That's what it sounded like an invitation to do when you began the series. Or if we don't, what are we returning ourselves to? You know, our, our own in enslavement, our own fears, right? Um, so we can either live in that world or we can live in this world of, of, you know, we can live in the, you know, the trapped world of doing, or we can live in this beautiful world of freedom and abundance and love. And it just is so beautiful. And then at the end, um, you spoke of taking this journey of silence to just be, like, I just thought if we just all just, like, just took a week to just be, you know, just a week for being, like, what would we, what would come from that? What a good experiment that might be. So anyway, that's what I want to share and all my gratitude for all your wisdom. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. When you're silent, when you're alone, um, anywhere near nature, there's nothing to prove about yourself. That all comes from the reflection of society, the mirror of society. Society is always trying to define you. Keep in mind, as spiritual people, we're peeling, we're, we're shedding, we're, we're stripping to get to the light. I mean, that's what I try to do in meditation. I let go of everything else, of everything else I think I am until, until I, I'm getting to the, the spirit. And you can think of it in different ways. I, I don't mind. But but there's a reality that this, whatever this experiment is, is not permanent in this way. And we have to face that at some point. And I think meditation is basically preparation for death. It's flirting with, with uh, body and soul, or you could say the individual and the universal. It's the foreplay. Uh, that leads up to liberation. And so that with enough of that kind of dance, that kind of magic, when it's time, the 
the individual accords with the discharge of the of one spirit. Anyways, um, the other thank you for that. Is, I appreciate that. The other question that I'm seeing there may be more, but what one I found from uh, Cinnamon is. Uh, You mentioned masculinity having inner qualities of optimism, resilience, and other traits that help us to persevere. Would you please talk more about that? So uh, optimism, I find to be more valuable uh, at times than hope. Not that hope isn't a beautiful quality, but hope might be a little bit more passive at a time where we have to do something to get through a difficult situation. So hope has it maybe falls somewhere on this masculine continuum that orients my mind towards trusting in my own resources, trusting that no matter what's going on, I can find a way to work with what is with reality to build something meaningful and beautiful if possible. Resilience happens by making decisions, which stereotypically would would be a quality of masculinity, making a decision, right? And so when it's part of the patriarchy, it's like the man makes every decision or the father makes every major decision for the household or has the final say. But in life, in the moment, I may have to make a decision for myself. I may have to tap into that energy. And when we're hurting, when we're stuck or heartbroken, it's difficult to make the decision that would allow us to move positively forward with acceptance. So to help with with these two, I encourage people to be creative, to write, to journal, to draw, to to garden, to cook, because to paint, to any of these things, to play music like me. Because in any of these activities, without realizing it, you have to make a bunch of decisions. Even if you start a watercolor painting, it will quickly go unexpectedly and you'll have to make decisions but the brain doesn't differentiate between art decisions and life decisions so you come out of that with an increase in the neurochemical dopamine which is a motivating chemical on top of being a feel-good transmitter and a sense of achievement that will actually translate to being able to make creative powerful decisions for your life when i lost love uh, some years ago and felt heartbroken My brother encouraged me to use the woodworking tools that he had in the garage, but I had never used them. He just showed me how to do it. And then off I went to make a small table out of old pallets. By the time I finished the table, I felt that I had worked through my grief. This is like what I was talking about with um, apprenticing. But in, in this case, all the decisions I made for the table led me to feel like I had what I needed internally to make healthy decisions for myself to heal and to move positively forward from my past pain. So there's there's a, a lot more you can find about this uh, particular topic of resilience and optimism in some of the episodes of my podcast too, but, but those are uh, just a few things I can share. So thanks so much for the question and for the conversation, everybody.